0: Welcome to
1: School of Everything Else.
0: Gargoyles.
2: One thousand years ago, superstition and the sword ruled. It was a time of darkness. It was a world of fear. It was the age of gargoyles. Stone by day. Warriors by night, we were betrayed by the humans we had sworn to protect, frozen in stone by a magic spell for a thousand years. Now, here in Manhattan, the spell is broken and we live again.
0: Of the night. We are gargoyles. Tonight, we are doing another commissioned show talking about an animated series that kind of passed both Sharon and I by originally. Released in 1994, around the time I was watching a lot of Friends and Frasier and The Simpsons, and pulling away from Saturday Morning Fair, which is not to disparage Saturday Morning Fair, by the way. Just that that explains it. it Just explains what I was doing at the time. Uh, Gargoyles, for the uninitiated, is a serious sci-fi fantasy animated show about a group of mythical creatures displaced by a thousand years and trying to come to terms with living in New York at the end of the 20th century. It was co-created by Frank Parr and one of our favourite TV people. Greg Weissman, the man behind Spectacular Spider-Man and Star Wars Rebels, both of which we've already done shows on, and you can find those on the School of Everything Else archive, as well as Young Justice, which is exceptional superhero TV, and we will eventually be covering that as well. Joining us for the first time is Greg bashansky a listener who has some personal experience with the show Gargoyles and its creator. Greg, I don't want to sell you short or get anything wrong. So if you just tell the good people what that experience is by way of introduction, just so that they know um, what stuff you've done.
3: Well, I watched the show from day one back in 1994 and it came and it went. It ran for about two seasons or there's a, there's a third season but nobody in the fandom counts that i'm going one. to
0: ask you about that one later as to as to why people don't like the third season because i have no idea but uh, how old were you at the time greg when you first started was, watching it
3: i was 13 actually and it okay, came to so me and age. actually yeah at the perfect time of my life i my parents had just gotten divorced we moved to a new community my life had just fallen apart at the time and I, at the time and it felt familiar
0: hmm <laughs> yeah
3: um, so, uh, but
0: aside from just watching it, you've, you've done other stuff to, to do with Greg, uh, Weissman as well.
3: Well, it started little by little. I mean, back in 1997, after the show ended, I, my friend had this thing called America online. This is how long ago that was. <laughs> <laughs> we went onto the internet and I just said, is there anything on gargoyles on there? Because I really liked that show. And I found there were these old forums there, though the forum really hasn't changed much since 1997 and a new uh, website called Ask Greg opened where Greg Wiseman had started taking questions. I didn't know who he was yet because this was before cartoon shows really started crediting people who created them. I mean, I would say it started with Batman, the animated series, Mm -hmm. but even then that was a bit of a bit of a slow burn. There was a convention that was going to be in New York city. I missed the first one. I went to the second one and it started traveling around and I, went to most of those actually because i ended up making a lot of really close friends in that fandom and i worked on a couple of the staffs for those i worked on about four staffs and he was heavily involved with the conventions mr greg weitzman not not um officially involved but he came to every convention and it was a small convention he was very open with the fans very approachable he could just walk up to the guy sit down with him hang out with him and have a conversation not like you anything you can do at say san diego comic-con mm. I, uh, we watched the uh, the like thirteen minute
0: uh, feature on season one. Is it a gathering of gargoyles? The- yeah, I'm
3: in- oh, I'm in that. Oh, cool. Which well,
0: uh, obviously, which bit were you in? Um,
3: but it's uh- uh, yeah, I talk about Demona.
0: <laughs> yeah, I oh, go I- oh, oh, okay. Right. So, yeah, we we watched all the uh, episodes, a couple of them twice because we listened to the uh, commentaries, and I th- it wasn't until just minutes ago watching the uh, the the featurettes so that I was like, I get it now. Like I get why people really relate to the show, and this is some of my questions are very much going to lead into why this is special to a lot of people. But yeah, that's I'd I'd call that essential for people going in. Like once you've seen those first thirteen episodes, make sure you watch that featurette.
4: Goliath, my
0: love. Damona is this tremendously complex.
2: Character full of guilt, having lived for a thousand years. The, our gargoyles, our heroes,
0: were asleep for a thousand years, but Demona wasn't. She was alive for a thousand years. And uh, Demona,
3: in essence, becomes her own worst enemy.
4: The centuries have made you weak, Goliath.
3: She's not your typical villain. I mean, she has a legitimate gripe, she, a legitimate cause. I mean, don't see these villains outside of classic literature. As such, because I worked on staff, I had his email address, so we kept in touch, and eventually around yeah 2007, I went to film school in Los Angeles. I'm originally from New York, and I'm back in New York, and at the time, he was working on Spectacular Spider-Man. Season one hadn't aired yet, but we were already friends, so I would go down there to the studio once a month. I got the full tour a few times, and uh, while well, that show was in production, so I feel a special connection to Spectacular Spider-Man, and um, it was really fun, unfortunately... Film school, I mean, it's hard to break into that business. It's, uh, unless you already know people. And even when you do know people, it's still really hard because in animation, it's, uh, they have people who work who they move from show to show, so there's very seldom any openings. And I'm back in New York right now. I'm still writing. I mean, I haven't published anything officially yet. I mean, you've published a lot of things yourself. I mean, some really good work. And, but I'm currently working on three books.
0: <laughs> you said you're on Greg Weissman's Spectacular Spider Man podcast.
3: It's actually my podcast. Oh. I wrote – a friend of mine runs a, a spider a network of Spider-Man-related podcasts, SpideyDude.com. He does Clone Saga Chronicles. We have Mayday Mondays. He does the Spider-Girl comic. Oh. And he asked me, do you want to do a spectacular Spider-Man podcast? And I said, I don't know. Maybe. I really don't know. And I emailed Greg Weisman. I said, hey, we're talking about doing this. Would you be interested in coming on for an interview? And he said, hey, I'll come on and talk about every episode with you guys. And wow. <laughs> And that's what happened. So we're doing the extras that Sony wouldn't give you on the Blu-ray release. So it's sort of a the commentary that we never got.
0: Okay, okay well, hang on a second. Nice. I'm just going to go to the uh, iTunes store and, like, download every episode. So what's that one called?
3: A spectacular Radio. And um, Greg comes on for the odd-numbered episodes and the even-numbered episodes are fan panels where a bunch of fans review the episodes. We just finished up the... Um, the first arc of um, season two. And it's not just him. We've had other guests on. We've had Vanessa Marshall, Josh Keaton, Vic oh, wow. Cook. The, to me,
0: uh, at this point, you know, not having yet seen um, Spider-Man Homecoming, hands down, the best representation of Spidey in any media. And I said that when we did the uh, show uh, a couple of years ago. Um, they they nailed it. And uh, yeah, I, look, I really look forward to listening to this show. and
3: And I... Would also uh, agree with you even if I didn't know the man personally. (laughs) But but I'll never forget it. When he told me that he had gotten a Spider Man gig, I'd heard they were making a new Spider Man cartoon, and I had been disappointed in the others, and I said, oh, great. Then he told me he got it, and I'm like, oh, great. Because I was familiar with Gargoyle, so I knew what the guy could do.
0: So in like the last Spidey cartoon that uh, happened before this was that Sony one, simply called Spider-Man, wasn't it? Actually, it was Spider-Man The New Animated Series, which, much like New Super Mario Brothers, is not new anymore. So way to date your title.
3: Yes, it was. It was yeah. the, uh, the CGI one.
0: Yeah, which uh, has dated horribly in the interim years.
3: That, that, that
0: puts you very much in uh, the, uh, the realms of sort of veteran of gargoyles that we really, really needed to, uh, to, to help us through with this one. Because we'd be, like, without you here right now, we'd be sort of giving our impressions of it. But you can sort of, like, pick up what we say and run with it and, and just give it that extra oomph for all of the uh, the fans and listeners. So yeah, Greg is going to guide us through this labyrinth because there are going to be two kinds of listeners to this episode. The people who, like us a few weeks ago, didn't know much of anything about gargoyles. And people who have known and loved the series for years and will be keen for us to really go into some depth. And Greg is here to ensure that we do get that sense of clarity and familiarity and we just do hit those depths. Now, the natural reaction from this second group will be that Sharon and I absolutely must see and then cover season two. But that we shouldn't do season three because it's no good and it's not canon anyway. I never say never, but I'm going to give this inevitable repeat request, which has already been mooted several times before we even recorded this one, as a hard no. Season one is 13 episodes long and we should have charged TV rates for that because... We were feeling generous and we did this at our standard movie rate of $150. Season two is 52 episodes. And even if everybody who loves this show club together to raise the required amount to pay for our time, which would be north of $1,000, we would then have to produce multiple episodes to accommodate all of that in-depth material. That a price tag like that warrants. Basically, for hundred fifty dollars, you get a show. For the like, we're doing Stranger Things in a couple of weeks' time, and that's going to be two shows, and we, you know, we're putting up that's four hundred and fifty dollars for that. But fifty two episodes of Gargoyles—that's a lot of ground to cover. That's basically a, a couple of months of our show.
1: Well, it's, what twenty five hours?
0: It doesn't even work out mathematically, but that's that's a, that's a lot works. of gargoyles, <laughs> talk. So that means we got to get it done here. And that's why uh, it's especially good that you're here, Greg, because you can give us some season two insight without necessarily telling everyone who's listening everything about season two. And if we can like keep a spoiler section nearer to the end where you can talk about what happens after this, then that way people who are hungry for season two insight will be a little bit more sated by that. And um, actually, can you recommend any
3: really good gargoyles podcasts? Um, there's the gargoyles reawakening podcast that, Um, It's on YouTube, though. They're not in iTunes, but um, that's the only one that I'm really aware of at the moment. Well, that's where you folks uh, who are really, really into
0: Gargoyles should go. Those guys will will obviously be able to cover it in much better depth than we would. Um, For those who haven't become familiar with Gargoyles ever, the premise is pretty simple, but it could have been handled in any number of ways – and I, I got these, like, when I was watching it again recently, the, these kind of nightmares of like a poochified version of gargoyles. Like, if you you ever see the um, intro to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fast forward?
3: Um, no, I haven't, but I know what you're talking about. Do you, like, that that is, if I was going to say.
0: The most poochified, like, overly marketed, like, sticking it straight in kids' hands and going, here, this is what you like. We've filled it with all these rad things that you like. And, like, they haven't even really thought about the person that they're communicating with. And they certainly don't seem to have, have really thought, we are going to tell a really good story with this one. They now, must
1: all be wearing sunglasses. Ideally, they should be wearing uh, riding skateboards, and at least one of them
0: should have a mohawk. Hoverboards? It's set in the future.
4: Oh, well, there you go
1: then.
0: And Leonardo's got to have lightsabers because suddenly the pre- calls a bit big and and so leo has got to have
4: lightsabers. but the more change, the more they the still kicking button, playing video games. Driving everyone nuts, really Get out of my way yeah. So not yesterday, basketball. It's the only way to play. Guess we're here
0: to stay. Um, now, I haven't ever watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fast forward, but that is one of the most obnoxious intros I've ever seen. And Gargoyles is kind of the opposite of that. It's very serious straight away. It's got this kind of dark gothic, uh, I mean, obviously, we're going to mention Batman the Animated Series repeatedly, but that was, uh, that was a good touchstone for serious animated shows for the 90s. They weren't, like most of them were related to Marvel or, okay, the DC ones were a lot more kind of um, like playing everything straight. I mean, technically the Marvel shows played the things X-Men straight as well. Was yeah, was
1: kind of serious. Yeah. for the most part. It's just
0: yeah it's okay. Yeah, so the 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 straightforward comic ones we could probably fold Spawn in with that as well. But Spawn had all of that. She's giving me the eyebrow. I
1: don't know. I never watched
0: Spawn. Okay, it's it's got very much a lot of attitude, kind of like you know, but. but Did you ever see the um, VHS tapes of the Spawn animated series, Greg?
3: Yes, I have. I remember when it was new.
0: (laughs) I wish I could get hold of those, because at the beginning of every episode, and I think I may have mentioned this on a previous uh, show, um, Todd McFarlane himself stepped out of the shadows in, in a misty alley that had been put together as a set and said, Nightmares, who can tell where they are from? My friend Spawn lives in an alley like this, and he is no stranger to Nightmares. And he's basically coming out there like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, Greg, but um, Garth Marenghi, going, I'm Garth Marenghi, writer, dreamweaver, plus actor. Entirely unironically being super serious and self-serious in, in, in that same thing. The moonlight shone down on the place unhindered. The gnarled parapets jagged upwards like a bony hand of icy indifference. In the background, there was a pigeon. Who knew how long the place had stood there? Forty years? Fifty years?
2: Tempus
1: immemoria, i.e. always? But it was a bad place.
4: That much was certain. A very bad place indeed.
0: And Gargoyles had, again, it gone the other way, could have ended up ridiculously self-serious and taking itself too seriously and been pompous with it, which is often what Spawn, even if it is as ridiculous as it is, sometimes comes off like. So there were all these different directions that this could have taken. And frankly, I'm still amazed they got a second season and that they got 52 episodes, not because they're not good, but because what they were doing was not as heavily marketed Mm -hmm. as the kind of stuff that does succeed. Is. Mm,
1: I do have a particular idea why or how they managed to stay out of the drain of either putrification or complete self seriousness, but I'll we'll discuss that. Can when you not do it now? Okay. Well, it, okay. Essentially, we're
0: going to be doing this in quite a loose way rather than like a very strict okay, characters enough, well, episode well, by episode stuff.
1: One of the things that struck me most about the the series and the the approach that they took, and it actually only kind of crystallised when we watched one of the other. Um, featurettes on the disc which was um, Greg Wiseman's pitch to Disney was the fact that they had this selection of gargoyle characters with one of the most perfectly balanced sets of characteristics that I've ever seen. You've got Goliath who is incredibly serious and deep and and focused on
0: can i stop you for a second i'm so sorry i hate interrupting you i meant to actually explain what the premise of the show was we're now 17 minutes in and people who've never seen it still don't know what the hell this is about yeah that's I'll why i was a very a bit puzzled
1: when you said go on because uh, obviously this, this is not the ideal place to do this
0: hold up for a second okay. let me get this one set <laughs> So, in the year 994, amid conflict with various medieval types, a clan of gargoyles are placed under a spell which effectively turns them to stone for a thousand years. I know that it's a biological thing in the canon, but um, they are turned to stone. In the year 1994, they unfreeze and find themselves embroiled in the schemes of a power-mad industrialist named Xanatos. Season 1 is about this group acclimatizing themselves to life in the 1990s with the help of a female police officer their leader goliath was prior to his long sleep consumed with grief over the apparent death of his partner but he finds out that she's still alive and severely pissed off with humanity every episode the gargoyles some childlike some mature one of them basically a dog learn more about what it means to be human in a disarmingly frank fashion so is there anything that i uh, overshot or didn't mention there that's quite, quite important i don't think so <laughs> good Because I was like, oh, God, how the hell do you summarize this? Because, I mean, that's... Five episodes worth of stuff in one, just a couple of paragraphs, um, and we'll go into exactly what happens over those five episodes. Uh, you know, after we've talked about this further. But so you were saying various different personalities, starting with Goliath. Yes. Go.
1: Um, so you have Goliath, who is very serious and almost this Batman type, um, very dedicated to. There's his... no
0: almost about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> He's very dedicated to his cause, um, and is sort of this very serious character. And had he been the only one, or had they all been like him,
4: it would have, it would have edged
1: over into self-seriousness, exactly. But then you've got uh, Hudson, who is his um, old-timey mentor. His
0: bones. Yeah, or absolutely. His, um, oh, who else am I thinking here? Gandalf. No, hang on. It's Luke Grant. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, it, 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 yeah, it is yeah. Um, it, um I, I might be thinking of uh, Tom Sizemore in um, Saving Private Ryan. Does that make sense to Tom Hanks's he's his, leader? He's the captain, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, I can see that. Like a, a, a grizzled old second-in-command yeah, type. Yeah, the veteran. Well,
1: he's he's. I think oh, you find uh, out in Ironhide
0: to Optimus Prime.
1: Yes, yeah, but you do. I think you do find out that he was actually the leader at one point, but he stepped down and mm. Goliath took over. Um, and he's also quite sort of up the serious end of things, mm. um, but he's a little bit more comical in appearance. He's not this big, statuesque stone.
0: He likes um, to watch TV in a wake of life, doesn't?
1: Absolutely. Um, and then, so he's he's kind of got this well-meaning old grandpa thing going on a little bit. And then gradually you go down the chain, and, and until you get to the the younger gargoyles, who are very kind of. They see the fun in things. They're described as the trio
0: by Greg Weissman. Yeah,
1: there's a a silly side of things. But again, they're not entirely of a mind. You know, they don't all go in with this sort of slapsticky Three Stooges kind of approach to things. Um, There's a couple of episodes that feature, I want to say, Lexington. Who's the one with the big beaky nose?
3: Brooklyn. Brooklyn.
1: Brooklyn. He's... (laughs) If this is going to sound weird considering that I just got his name wrong. He's my
0: favorite. That one yeah. that I don't know.
1: <laughs> but but the names are kind of that's that's the thing about the gargoyles as well. They don't have <laughs> names initially. Mm. They give themselves their own names.
0: We will by the way if we ever refer to the gargoyles prior to them giving themselves the names like in the past, we're just going to call them by their future names mm. anyway. Just
1: to avoid confusion. How well, do you get I, by that's without what having that fandom
3: does anyway? Okay, so sorry. <laughs>
1: Um, but the the fact that you know uh, Brooklyn is a bit more serious than the other two and sort of feels responsibility a little bit more than the other two do, and then you go down the ranks until you get to Bronx, who's you know <laughs> they're doing the Frank Welker uh, voice. And
0: he, I was going <laughs> to say he's a bit like Scooby Doo, starring Frank Welker. <laughs> we are totally <laughs> getting Welker in thing. this one. He's
1: he's there for the for the pre-verbal kids. He's there for the little toddlers who want to see.
0: Having said that,
1: laughing, rolling dog.
0: I, I was like, oh, there's a dog. I can't remember. Like, I have actually, like, full disclosure. I did buy the entirety of Gargoyle season one a few years ago. Watched it all the way through and went, that was all right. And then sold it on because it was like I I, I don't, you know, I'm not gonna be able to sit through all 52 episodes of season two, so let's just move on. Because I couldn't not see it, it being recommended to me as often as it is. Mm. So I just I felt like I should, but I'd forgotten pretty much everything about it. And it's not like wow, my eyes are now open, but you know, it's it's like certain elements did come back, but um, the way they handled Bronx, like the moment he turned up. He could have been like this scary gargoyle and then he like jumps on top of someone's chest and goes and licks their face. And it's like they do like there's a bit of that going on, but it's not like, oh, the gargoyle thinks it's a dog. Like it's a biological creature that Mm. behaves like a dog. It's not just a punchline Mm,
1: or a a
0: walking gag. However,
1: that does give you a strong selling point to Disney, who are quite fond of putting something that thinks it's a dog in their movies. As we've
0: established Mm -hmm. by talking to uh, Daniel Floyd, there's uh, nothing that sells better to kids than uh, something that thinks it's a dog but isn't actually a dog. And if it is actually a dog, you better put the sniffing butts gag in there, unless you're Disney, who are a bit classier than that. Um, So if we see you do that, Disney points off
1: well that that's essentially what i was saying is just that the fact that they have this range of 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 levels for where you can approach the characters from means that it's got an appeal it's not the same thing as broad appeal which is where you kind of do away with anything that might be even a little bit out there it's more the fact that they've been able to fold in all of the out there stuff Mm. into this group of characters
0: and that their antagonists have many layers to them as well, Absolutely. which helps. Yeah. I-, I thought
2: you were dead, Your Highness. I was mad with grief. Reverse the spell. <laughs> Bring them back!
0: I I cannot! The page with the counter spell was burned!
2: a stone forever the terms of the spell were that they would sleep until the castle rises above the clouds
4: we have done you a great wrong
1: Goliath
2: I know that no apology can be enough Goliath I wish there was something I could do. What will you do now, princess?
0: I'll take my people to my uncle. It's no longer safe for us here.
2: I have a request.
0: You have to name it.
2: The eggs in the rookery will soon hatch. They will need guidance.
4: Never fear. We will watch over them as if they were our own.
2: There is something... You can do for me, Magus. Cast your spell one more time.
0: So how much do you guys know about how this show was put together initially?
3: I know everything about how we got <laughs> together initially, but... We well the story hoping you
0: say that. <laughs> uh, do you, you want to give us a rundown of basically, like... Because uh, I'm assuming, like, you, you, you've, you've curated this. Uh, and, oh, hang on, that's what I was going to ask you. Is there, like, a, a Bronx tale in uh, those 52 episodes of Season 2 where um, it's all about this
3: dog? There's sort of an episode in Season 2 that focuses on him. It's an episode during the World Tour that takes place in Ireland. Okay, where they uh, meet Cú Chulainn from Irish mythology. <laughs> I'm
0: thinking about the uh, the APA episode of um, uh, Avatar here. Um, but there's just...
3: there's sort of an episode like that in season three, only it's not really good. He befriends an Amish kid. <laughs> oh,
0: that's unexpected. <laughs> um, I was just basically I uh, trying to think of it because they don't ever really justify his inclusion in the group in season one. Was there a end game to having Bronx there. And from the sounds of it, he was never really brought to the fore, if
3: that makes sense. They gave him more to do during the world tour arc in the second season, but I would say that he never becomes the most important character, but he's hmm. popular among the fandom. They do introduce more like him. Okay. But
0: there was um, in the eighties uh, specifically a tendency to like add a dog or possibly a monkey to most cartoons like they added Ms. Lion to Spider-Man and his amazing friends Um, let's see Uh,
1: (laughs) I'll see you an unusual group dynamic and I will raise you a Pekingese
0: didn't Centurions also have a monkey I think it had a chimp I could be wrong on that Uh, it could be an orangutan was it Mask one of
1: them had no Mask had a little robot
0: that's T-Bob
1: yeah, there's one there's Obviously, definitely No no is uh, I'm
0: the little robot guy in, in uh, Ulysses, Ulysses thirty one.
1: Oh, pole position.
0: Pole position they had, had, had Kuma, who was Kuma, a raccoon that could really really put a thing,
1: yeah. Um, there
0: was definitely
1: opposable thumbs in there.
0: Jason the Wheel Warriors had a big flying fish, didn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it did. Yeah. I, um, I missed that one. <laughs> Fun the Cats had Snarf. Ghostbusters had Slimer. Oh my god! It's an epidemic of just like these mascot characters for the kids.
1: Did the X Men because they didn't have Kitty Pride, which meant
0: Jubilee they have was kind a of their mascot. Yeah,
1: I suppose so. Yeah,
0: that and Lockheed. A, they didn't and a Pride
3: Pryde. of the X Men had gone on. Lockheed would have probably been it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, totally. Lockheed.
0: Yeah, totally yeah, would have been in there.
3: Absolutely.
0: But yeah, they they, they would put in Lockheed in the X Men comics for exactly the same reason. That was during the eighties, mm. um, and
1: he's uh, something you can turn into a plushie.
0: See, Brave Star had deputy Fuzz who was kind of like this little animal Warwick Davis looking guy. Mm. I mean, he was a little person. He wasn't an animal, but like he was a cute thing who was put in there for the kids.
1: I'm sure, there was something where the, the the son had a bush baby or some it, that might be Centurions.
0: He man had Orko. Shewar had Cowl. Batman had Robin. <laughs> it's not the same <laughs> thing at all. Ace the Bat Hound. Ace the Bat Hound. There you go. Super dog. Super yeah.
1: Uh,
0: um, crypto. Uh, crypto the Super Dog. That's the one. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs>
3: Although Bronx Bronx, Bronx would have gone farther south, because if you look at the original pitch on the DVD, he was originally meant to be be way more comic relief. When Frank Parr came in and helped redesign characters' appearances, he wanted to give the character a little bit more dignity, make him more dog-like, instead of just comic relief.
0: Yeah, the original um, uh, production sketch for um, uh, Bronx that was in Greg Weissman's pitch uh, to the network... Was um, like this very kind of Scooby Doo looking dog, which thankfully they refined. So yeah, we 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 owe a lot to Frank. To Frank, yeah. Um, So on that note, uh, how did Greg Weissman get this show made? Because I mean, what what had he worked on beforehand, and how did he how did he pitch it to? At the time, it was Michael Eisner.
3: Yeah, well, at the time, it was basically what happened was he was working as a development executive at Walt Disney Television Animation. He would moved there after a run at DC Comics where he co-wrote Captain Atom with Carrie Bates for several years, and he helped develop and sell shows. That was his job there, and then he would just hand them off to a producer, and, he, and they had an idea to do a show about gargoyles, and they developed something quite polar opposite to this at first. It was a, a comedic show, more in the vein of Gummy Bears. The first
0: part of my notes was the animation is resplendent of gummy bears, <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and they pitched that they had almost all of the characters had an equivalent in that f- version except for Goliath. There was no Goliath character in that, but there was the tr- there was a trio. There was Hudson. There what they had different names so There was an Elisa f- type character. There was a Demona, and there was a Xanatos. although the Xanatos in the comedy pitch was more. Was more Captain Hook, Disney Captain Hook, than the Machiavellian mm. schemer we, we eventually got.
0: Was this set modern day or uh, period?
3: Both. Oh right. So Med- it, medieval times, and then they moved, and then they brought them to more, towards modern day. And Greg, several years back, posted all of his uh, documents detailing the uh, development of the series, including the comedy development. And I'm glad we got the show that we ended up getting. Oh, yeah. So th- they pitched that to Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner didn't buy it, so they went back to the drawing board. And Tad Stones, who at the time was working on Darkling Duck, suggested a big heroic gargoyle. And so Greg came up with Goliath, put everything through the prism of who Goliath was, and they um, came up with this huge pitch with all these villains, all these characters, all these elements, pitched it to Michael Eisner again, and Michael Eisner said no. But Jeffrey Katzenberg the next day said to them, keep working on that, because Katzenberg really liked it. So Katzenberg sort of ended up saving it.
0: (laughs) Oh, Sharon of Little Faith, I said, guess who they pitched it to originally? And Sharon's first guess was Katzenberg, and my first guess would have been, had Katzenberg seen it, I'm bored. The kid beside me is bored. But no, it's the exact opposite.
3: Yeah, I there heard you your go. Little Mermaid podcast, and I was amused as I was thinking of this anecdote. <laughs> <the time. laughs> well, you know what yeah. to say about broken clocks. Yeah,
1: <laughs> even Jeffrey has to be right once or twice.
0: The, well, yeah, the, um, uh, the 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 pitch on the uh, DVD for folks who haven't seen it uh, uh, was was quite brazen. I mean, this is from the sounds of what you're saying. This is when they had uh, uh, developed it beyond just the comedy version. And it's pretty close to how it ended up. And it's, it's Greg sort of showing you a bunch of production uh, art. And it, it, the thing it most reminded me of, and in fact the whole show most reminds me of, is a movie called Small Soldiers, where David Cross and Jay Moore are toy developers pitching to Dennis Leary. David Cross has an idea for a, a bunch of good guys who want to learn things about the world, the Gorgonites. Jay Moore comes in with the Commando Elite... Uh, who he, are just going to, you know, badasses that are going to uh, shoot people. And the way Dennis Leary sees things, he's just a jaded Hasbro executive in the 80s, pretty much. And he's like, right. Now, these guys are soldiers, right? And what do soldiers need?
4: Hats. Cam, cam, cam camouflage. Miss Kegel. Enemies, sir.
0: Enemies?
2: See, these hideous, ugly freaks, these guys are the enemy, and our guys have to seek them out and vaporize them.
1: Well, no, they're not. Uh, Sir, (laughs) Um, don't you think that's uh, um, a bit violent? Exactly.
2: So don't call it violence. Call it action. Kids love action. Cells. sells. Besides, what are you worried about?
4: They're only toys.
3: I can't believe this. This This is wrong. This is really wrong. I mean... You know, this is a, a total perversion of everything I designed these Gorgonites to be. Oh,
4: would you canon, Irwin, Come on, this is a
0: golden opportunity. If we pull this off, we will have Gilmars eating out of our hands. Greg's pitch felt like he was, like, really trying to do something and sort of put something together. So I can understand why Eisen was like, ah, come back when you got, like, straight to video sequels to our absolute classics
1: Mm. but Uh it it could have been worse because it well no it couldn't he couldn't have done this obviously because they weren't doing batman but you know to say i don't like that idea for the show but maybe these guys could fight batman
3: yeah (laughs) well and then what happened was you know katzenberg told them to you know just work on the show pitch it again and Greg and his team really liked the show that they had developed. So they didn't change the show. They just changed the pitch. They took out things like the pack, things like the mutates that would turn up in season two and just mm-hmm. focus the pitch mostly on Goliath and Elisa and that relationship. And it helped that Disney had just had a major hit in a movie called Beauty and the Beast. You may have heard of it. Uh, we did hear of it. And that's
0: uh, <laughs> a lot of the uh, production artwork kind of reminded me of that. Um, uh, in fact, there were several moments when it sort of veered between um, uh, what was it? It was, it was, it veered between Batman the animated series, and this was in one of the final episodes of season one, and then suddenly Beauty and the Beast when it's go, uh, Goliath and Elisa, and it just, it, it seemed like, I could imagine Disney execs two years after Batman animated series had come out and was doing gangbusters for the WB going, we need something like that. And then they bring something which has just enough of a Beauty and the Beast element to it to make it feel Disneyish. And the way he concludes this presentation is coming to Disney in 1994. And this this picture of this little boy with a balloon in the shadow of a gargoyle looking terrified. And it's like we are aware of the fact that this isn't your traditional Disney, but that's a selling point. (laughs) And that may have been what, what swung it in the end. Mm,
3: Apparently, supposedly Eisner was really amused by it. And then he bought, he loved the third pitch, bought it and they went on to make the show. And Greg himself is, they had was supposed to move on to different, develop different properties, but they had trouble finding a producer to run the show. So he was making decisions. The showrunner, would and then eventually brought in frank parr to handle the art side of things they went through a few writers who didn't quite work out and by the time and then greg was so emotionally attached to it that he didn't want to leave it so he moved over from being a development executive to producing the show that's why even though he was really hands-on with a five-part pilot his name isn't in the credits of the pilot because uh-huh. he was still technically an executive at the time then he moved over right after that and his name is in the credits as a co-producer and and the rest is history
0: oh i hate the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to talk about the rest it, it being the history so yeah to put this in context uh Teenage Mutant ninja turtles have come out in 87 and that was probably the cartoon that really kicked into gear the idea of like you know, because although Hasbro had had this like triple whammy with GI Joe, My Little Pony, and um, Transformers in the uh, early '80s, and everyone was trying to sort of do that, when Ninja Turtles came along, they had a mania. No one had had a mania before that, and there were a lot of Ninja Turtles aping stuff. Uh, you know, like crappy clearly obviously cash in cartoons just churned out and kids could smell that i remember at the time when i was 10 going oh i see i see samurai pizza cats even though that's not necessarily like you know wasn't like it's they include turtles related gags in in there it's it's a japanese property um they've got their own things to ape without like you know aping the turtles but you know in america it was like right What's this, Bucky O'Hare? I don't care about the fact that it was written as a comic by the, um, the guy from uh, uh, Larry Hammer from G.I. Joe like 20 years ago. Get it on my... Oh, sorry, that, at the time it was been like 12 years ago. Get it on my desk now because it's got a rabbit who's in a spaceship because we can do stuff with um, mutant animals. And, you know, sewer sharks and biker mice from Mars and all of these things just clearly trying to cash in on the turtles. And then Darkwing Duck... You know, if you asked me in a pub quiz, what year did Darkwing Duck come out? I would say 1993, the year after Batman, the animated series. And I would have been wrong because that was 91 before Batman. And that doesn't even make that much sense. I mean, I suppose like that would be two years after Burton's Batman. So enough time for Disney to go, right, let's do a duck version of Batman before Warner Brothers got together a Batman version of Batman. Um, But so, yeah, that was 91. Batman 92, X-Men 92, Spider-Man 94, Gargoyles 94, and then Superman 96. And things began to sort of evolve more beyond the, uh, the 90s. And, we, you know, things started pushing a bit more towards anime in the early 2000s. That would have been, would have been when Gundam Wing was on. Uh, was it on Cartoon Network? I think so, yeah. And Pokemon being the bigger hit, of course, yeah. Pokemon being absolutely huge. But basically, in the '94 was smack bang in the middle of the time when American properties were ruling the roost on uh, for Saturday morning cartoons. So, and Gargoyles did have a toy line tie-in, but it wasn't like it wasn't like massive, constant, many, many seasons, many, many series, many, many waves, the same way as Ninja Turtles was.
3: No, it wasn't. And Greg even admitted they weren't very good partners with Kenner. And Kenner sent them a document early on that was really hilarious. He posted that. They wanted Lisa to be a male. They wanted Demona to be a male.
0: Oh, because the girl toys don't sell.
3: Uh, <sighs> and they only got two two or three things into the show. A, a motorcycle, which they blew up before the first commercial, nice. and a helicopter, which was never seen again. It's nice. Greg was embarrassed by it. So was that like, you have to
0: include these in the show so that we can make the toys of them?
3: Yes. Ah, Those were the the only two instances, and Greg swept them under the rug as quickly as possible.
0: I saw a picture of the uh, collected figures just now. I can't remember if Desdemona was among their number. Sorry, if Demona was among their number. She was. She was, was, okay. But uh, what about Elisa?
3: She eventually got a figure, but she was dressed more like Judge Dredd. It wasn't the character model, at least from the show.
0: Right. Now, I, I think I saw a custom version of her that had been made by someone who just really wanted them to do that properly. We won't speculate too much on whether Gargoyles will make any kind of resurgence. We'll wait until some possible resurgence. But at the, uh, I think we're probably going to have to sort of take this as like uh, one of those 90s properties that will stay buried for a long time. I mean, although now the kids who are were '90s kids more so than the the '80s kids who've just been catered to repeatedly with the Transformers, because we've only just had the uh, the Power Rangers movie. It's feasible that now we're in the ascendry where like the '90s kids mm. are going to get catered There's,
1: for. They've been widely catering to the nostalgia of Gen X's. Mm. Um and. I I don't know how that's going to work when it goes over into the early millennial generation because I it's it yeah. there seems to be a thing that nostalgia doesn't hit them quite so hard but maybe because it's not that long ago. It's, it's
0: possible that, that uh it was down to the fact that with the advent of the internet, they had stuff regarding the things they loved at their Mm. fingertips, whereas the Gen Xers had to put up with what they had doled out to them. That's that's a
1: very good point, actually, because people who were really into um, early to mid, even to late 80s stuff, we had less of uh, an ability to discuss that and, and debate it to death with people because there was yes you've got your mates in the playground but if you were really really deeply into stuff you could guarantee you were the one kid who was really really deeply into it and you Mm. wouldn't have many people to to go into it in that much depth whereas come the late 90s early 2000s you get to discuss that with all sorts of different people and Mm. possibly got it out of your system then I don't know
0: Part of Gargoyles' appeal to its major fans is the fact that they can, they they could back in the day, in the early nineties, the early advent of the of internet 1.5, uh, get onto the Gargoyles forums and start chatting with other gargoyles fans and that was a big first thing
1: yeah but i mean as as far as (coughs) resurgence goes i think in fact something you said the other day about um firefly probably applies here the problem is if there is a resurgence it's never going to be as good as the original Mm. it's certainly not going to be the same as the original and i think that there would inevitably be a streak of disappointment in it that would mean it wouldn't be as successful as people would like to think it would be
0: star wars says hi but carry on. <laughs>
1: That's a very fine point, and I could be wrong. <laughs>
0: there are exceptions that yeah. prove the rule. Yeah, um,
3: and all these years later, Greg Wiseman is still trying.
0: Yeah. I love the I fact that he keeps it. going. And, like, you know, uh, he's, uh, he actually made, like, Rebels managed many more seasons than uh, his, his average um, show that he, you know, I think it was, did, did he leave off to season one?
3: After yeah, it was season, it was season one.
0: Yeah. Well, they're doing Young Justice season three now. Oh, of course, yeah. Was that Netflix again? Uh, no, it's their new streaming service. <laughs> okay. Um, someone on Twitter uh, the other day uh, said um, that uh, something along the lines of it, I'm paraphrasing here, kids TV has gone to hell in a handcart, cart, um, which uh, I strongly dispute because we've got the best kids TV available. Like, has, that has ever been available is the stuff that's coming out right now.
1: They just brought Samurai Jack back. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but here's the thing he said I'm going to be showing my kid Ulysses 31 and I was like yeah that's a great show and uh, the, the stuff that we watched in the 80s were great fun shows not as good as they are now but that was a good show however in the 80s you couldn't show your kid Ulysses 31 you can get Ulysses 31 on DVD now although the third volume is really hard to come by But you couldn't back then. We have so much more access to everything now, which means whatever the state of TV is, our access to it has never been better.
1: I will tell you what you had to do to watch Ulysses 31 as a kid in the mid-80s, because I did it. I had to get up (laughs) at 6 o'clock every morning, sneak into my parents' bedroom, because that was the only room in the house that had a TV that I could actually turn on. And watch it with the volume really really quiet so that they wouldn't hear me Wow, that's how dedicated I was to Ulysses 31 well, you know how much of a morning person I am not
3: yeah. oh, I, oh I have memories like that with Transformers back in 86 <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs>
0: So yeah, we've we've had the context and um, we've we've touched upon why this is so special to its fans. Uh, and one of my bullet points here is to explain succinctly what happens in the five-part mini-series that season one opens with. Sharon, do you want to do that? If you had one um, minute to be able to s- like elaborate to... on what I said earlier, five
1: part. Okay, basically um, the the five-part opening arc follows the manner by which the gargoyles find themselves in 1994 New York.
4: Hmm. Which
1: is to say that they are beasts, is that the right word? Who live on creatures. and guard. Creatures, thank you. A Mythical Scottish castle in 994 mm-hmm. AD. And the castle is uh, under more or less constant attack by Viking raiders and they defend it. And at some point along the way, it becomes apparent that there is a degree of resentment from the humans or some of the humans who live in the castle. Not only do they not appreciate what the gargoyles are doing, they actively want them gone. And a betrayal takes place whereby the... Leader of the Gargoyles, Goliath, is tricked into leaving the castle with a couple of um, other gargoyles for assistance. And when he comes back, he finds that the castle has been successfully raided in his absence and the majority of the remaining gargoyles have been destroyed. Um, He is so devastated by this that he asks the castle magician wizard merlin type although he's quite a young guy the magus the magus yeah um to cast a spell which the the gargoyles are basically live flesh and blood question mark. Creatures during yeah, they the night. During the night.
0: And the stone form they take on is a stone like substance that they turn themselves to. It's right. not actual stone.
1: Okay. So it's uh, bi-
0: they're biological creatures, that's not magic.
1: Okay. So during the day they become petrified. And he asks the uh, the Magus to cast a spell that will basically turn them to stone forever. Because he's failed and they haven't been able to to save the people in the castle. And the idea being that they will never reawaken again, However, well, which is
3: pretty dark by the way, yeah yes. essentially he was committing suicide there yeah.
1: absolutely um, however the uh, the the way the spell is phrased he uh, the magus says they will remain as stone until the castle rises above the clouds, yes, not with the intention that that is going to happen one day. Um, however, a thousand years later, uh, a gentleman by the name of, is it David? Yes. Xanatos. Um, fantastic name, by the way. Awesome choice. Means that the second he shows up, you're like, hmm, is this guy going to turn out to be less benevolent than he initially claims to be? <laughs> um, and he finds the uh, the Magus's old spell book. And um, basically, he decides he wants this castle. And it's a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a play on the stereotype of the uh, the wealthy, arrogant American who turns up in Britain and wants to buy up your, your castles. and. It sounds like it derives
0: from the uh, American industrialist who bought London Bridge. And thought that he was buying Tower Bridge, had the whole thing moved to Arizona brick by brick and then was dreadfully disappointed and got buyer's remorse when it turned out mm, to be the wrong bridge.
1: Absolutely. But I, I do remember this stereotype being very heavily ribbed in The Famous Five. Enid Blyton, this was like her, her favourite type of villain was a, a, an idiot American who came over and wanted to buy islands or castles or caves or something and couldn't quite get it through their head that they couldn't just ship the whole thing out to America. However, shipping the whole thing out to America is exactly what Xanatos manages to do. Um, So he has the whole castle taken to New York and put on top of a skyscraper in a gesture of incredible... uh, What's the term I'm looking for here? Health and
0: safety violation? That'll do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But by virtue of doing this, he obviously manages to raise said castle... Above the clouds, which means that the gargoyles then come back to life. And the the, the rest When of was Enid
0: Blyton writing, by the way? Uh thirties, early forties. Ah, so this was actually before it was nineteen sixty eight when London Bridge was sold to the Americans. So that was like she that was prescient writing on mm. her part.
1: <laughs> I'm pretty sure there'd been jokes knocking around about that well before it actually happened. Mm. Um that may be an apocryphal tale. But um but yeah, so the, the rest of the arc is, is about the gargoyles coming to terms with the fact that their, their castle is not their castle anymore, that the people that they have an instinct to protect are no longer there, but those protective instincts haven't gone anywhere and they gradually extend them out to the rest of New York throughout the, the rest of the series. Um, and they meet a modern-day uh, police detective Elisa, who is is in this because Xanatos is surprise, surprise, big creepy criminal,
3: um, and she's
1: uh, she's trying to take him down. <laughs> Billionaire industrialist, you know who would have thunk it? Um, and her was he also a,
0: a Playboy philanthropist? <laughs>
1: I think he tries to pretend he is, yes,
0: and a genius because he makes himself like a gargoyle suit in the, in weeks.
1: Yeah, it's quite impressive. Um, it looks a bit Iron Manny.
0: I'm Xanatos. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, so that's basically what that initial arc is about have i left out anything Demona Demona
2: he took her for the wars and left her alone It he was a Mona a he, he left, left her, her alone. alone He didn't write a letter and he didn't telephone oh, right.
4: right.
1: <laughs> Demona is a gargoyle as well She is instrumental to the betrayal by the humans back in 994 and initially, Goliath thinks she's been killed with the rest of the, the gargoyles in what they call the Rookery, um, which is sort of their their term for clan or their tribe. And he finds out that actually she wasn't destroyed, that she has been alive and well, well, inverted commas, for the last thousand years and is now in league with Xanatos.
0: Principally because she's very dejected.
1: Well, she was the most frustrated. Well, the fact that she got in on this whole selling the castle out to the Vikings was basically because she was furious that they were constantly being rejected by the the humans in the castle. Um, The princess, particularly, um, was was never appreciative of, of what they did and basically just thought they were all big old gross monsters that should go away and leave her alone. Um, but they, they can't because they are dedicated to protecting the castle. That's not something that they can just stop doing. As Goliath says, a, a gargoyle can't stop protecting any more than they can stop breathing.
0: OK, fact check, by the way. Uh, London Bridge was sold by London City Council, A uh, an oil entrepreneur. Robert P. McCulloch bought it for just over a million pounds and he, from the sounds of it, knew exactly which bridge he was buying because he was photographed on top of it. So he was, he was like, yeah, okay, I'll have that one. So uh, I think the, the, the bit that was embellished was, and the stupid yank thought he was buying tower bridge. <laughs> which, from the sounds of it, is the conjecture. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, that, that thus strands the gargoyles in the 90s, and they don't have a purpose and it's really satisfying when you get to the end of the first season and then they get their purpose because that could have been like they could have rushed this again there's so many ways they could have done this wrong and by the end of the first episode the pilot um uh, goliath could have basically laid down his mission statement of we are here to protect humanity like that takes a while and that is admirable. That feels like the end of a movie as opposed to the end of the first pilot episode, where it's like, right, let's establish an equilibrium so that from season, from episode two onwards, we can just do that and nothing changes as we move forwards and it's just very episodic and nothing. Oh, hmm. Episodic means. Oh, what be, would be the word when a TV is just.
4: Repetitive.
0: Um, no, no. You know how, um, like Ninja Turtles, nothing's going to change. Episodic. Episode, yeah, episode, yeah. So that was the word. Um, that is not the case with gargoyles going through it. Elisa gets injured in one episode and is on crutches in the next. Mm-hmm. There's an actual there a, like a a sense, chronology to yeah, it. Yeah,
1: there is very much a sense of consequences and in definitely this, consequences, which I really appreciated. One of the things I really loved about the first few episodes, even, was the fact that. They don't settle immediately. They don't arrive in New York and go, "Oh, okay, we're here now. This is what we're doing now." You've got this is radical,
0: and I love pizza. (laughs) um,
1: You've got the fact that that Goliath basically takes a few episodes to work through grief, rage, a sense of displacement, um, a sense of frustration, wonder. great loss of identity because who is he now if he doesn't have a castle to lead yeah um, you know all of that stuff comes and it's it's worked through gradually it's not a case of you know every episode something magical happens to suddenly make that emotion not an issue for him anymore mm. um, it, it's still there it still lingers and the and occasionally they will then come back to something much further down the line which got signalled early on, but then maybe gets left alone for a bit and then mm. they come back to it. And and it, it feels very organic in a way that a lot of other TV shows, even the X-Men, which I absolutely loved, did not manage to, to quite get that progression of, of things happening.
0: Mm. Spider-Man, to its credit, did have um, like lengthy... Arcs that went over multiple episodes, and it, mm. it felt like um, Peter, Peter was under pressure. Yeah. Peter. yeah, but I, I would yeah. say
1: it's it's distinguished from your, your standard animated show um, course very, very clearly. And I would I would compare it more to modern day uh, live action yeah. TV, really.
2: Yeah. My apologies for this, Goliath. No apologies needed. We are what we are. Her opinion will not change that.
1: Have you no pride? No sense of justice? We saved their lives and they repay us with contempt.
2: She is right, Goliath. You deserve better than this.
1: These cliffs were our home ages before they built their stone fortress. They should bow to us.
2: It is the nature of humankind to fear what they do not understand. Their ways are not our ways.
1: There are times when your patience astounds
4: me, my love.
0: Now, traditionally animated shows aimed at young boys have toy tie-ins and almost always there are tons of enemies so that they can sell both Autobots and Decepticons, Thundercats and Mutants, Mask and Venom, He-Man's Buddies and Skeletor's Cronies. So... My question is, how does Gargoyles differ from this 80s trope? But what it really comes down to is how do they position the antagonists at least throughout season one? And if you want, you can add to that, Greg, with uh, how they are introduced in season two, because that, again, interests me.
3: Well, I would say that most of them are connected to the Gargoyles in some way or another. I mean, obviously, the two main villains are Xanatos and Demona. Most of the other villains in meet work for Xanatos in some capacity, demona really doesn't though she's allied with him and hmm. at least until the uh first uh, quarter of season two then they kind of split because she pulls something that is too much even for him Oh, right. Uh, what's xanatos's
0: end game by the way because when i first saw it, i thought that he had deliberately put the castle up there to bring the gargoyles back to life but that doesn't like it it seems like the easiest way to position him as a villain is he's just a schemer he's trying to get the gargoyles to be his super soldiers but like what's his interest in them really
3: well the legend did intrigue him which is why he was also putting together the steel clan and after he loses the gargoyles he in season two he creates these this sort of mutates that are gargoyle like and Mm. when that doesn't work he clones goliath to create a character called Thalog, who turns out to be the most malevolent villain in the entire series
0: is that an anagram of goliath
3: goliath said backwards he right. <laughs> um, david being a this horrible villain that's hmm. really great
0: <laughs> but what's his end game does he just want super soldiers so that he can question mark because i villains end games is one of the things that interests me most because if you keep questioning a villain's end game and it eventually results in i don't know so he can you know the same thing we do every night pinky <laughs> um
3: <laughs> well there's I, a few things i mean he uh According to the series Bible, acquisition is his favorite word. He wants to own everything. He wants to control everything. Yeah. And um, he, the legend intrigued him. He, and he genuinely likes the gargoyles. He likes Goliath as a person. He doesn't hate them the way, that, like, say, Megatron hates Optimus Prime or Lex Luthor. Yeah. Hate Superman
0: and Megatrons uh, always had the worst um, uh, intentions into like a, I will rule the universe and we said this repeatedly on our Transformers shows. that's the worst thing you can want to do. Mm. How much extra effort is it to just control two planets? A universe? Oh, are you kidding? You can't even control the Decepticons! You do not have the administrative
1: experience, Megatron. Let it go.
0: Well, I guess Starscream can have this part of the universe and Soundwave can have this part of the universe. Get off my back. A lot of, um, especially recently, it seems to be like an industrialist who has power and they want to have more power. This is hitting a bit too close to home, isn't it? Yeah, um, and it, <laughs> I mean, And they just, they just want to feel super important.
3: Yeah, I pulled up a His Bible here. Here's what i say about Xanatos. Xanatos is is not a mad dictator or a warmonger He is not out to destroy humanity, take over the world, or bring our system of government and commerce crashing to the ground. Why would he want to? His success has seen no limit under the current system.
0: Yeah, no, he's a he's a capitalist.
3: (laughs) Very much so. Though in season two, we do find out that the one thing he really he really wants, which Greg reveals that he will never get because he's unable to get is immortality.
0: Ah, okay. Again, that's kind of a chestnut for me. Did you ever hear my Prometheus episode?
3: Uh, no, I, I probably have, but it's been
0: such a long time. <laughs> that was the point when uh, Peter Wayland went from being quite a fascinating character to, oh, you just want to live forever. Oh, that's really boring. Okay.
3: But, it, but it's more along the lines of he has this fear of death in old age. Yeah. It's a legitimate fear, not so much a, um, I want this because it would make me even more powerful. I mean, yeah. there's this episode where he acquires... A t- a uh, magical talisman of some kind that can, um, that supposedly can grant him mortality, and he decides he wants to use Hudson as the experiment on it. And he and Hudson have this back and forth between these cage bars, and mm. Hudson's the only one who ever actually manages to get under his skin. He points out that growing legitimately terrifies him. But nice. I think. Nice. So- but I think the overall arc would have been at some point that Xanatos would have gotten past that because, in season two, he does end up falling in love, getting married, having a kid. That would have been really nice to see.
0: So that's the the idea is that the subtext is that he's
3: gotten over that fear. The show didn't quite get that far yet, but it, ah. that was the uh, that was the direction they were eventually going in.
1: That sounds like quite a logical implication, actually, the idea that once you've had children, that grants you a form of immortality.
0: Well that's Peter Whale again. I have made robots. They're kind of like children. And I feel like a god now.
3: Xanatos <laughs> uh, yeah. is a lot more humanity than him. We see more yeah.
0: than- of no. <laughs> uh, but- <laughs> From what I saw of Xanatos, he's way better character than the way Peter Wailand is positioned. It frustrates me because um, Guy Pearce's performance as Peter Wailand in the uh, just the TED Talk promo for Prometheus was really good. But I mean, uh, Voldemort is a really excellent example of someone who will go to despicable lengths to escape the Reaper. And, um, you know, that, that's a fascinating uh, character right there, and, and he's absolutely tragic. So it can totally be done. And Xanatos definitely had, uh, from what I saw in Season 1, a lot of potential for that. So if I was going to watch... If if I was going to watch Season 2, he would be one of the guys I was watching closely, to just to see him change ideologically.
3: Meanwhile, in season two, we have Demona, and then eventually Macbeth, who I think we'll talk about a little bit more here, who are kind of these walk-in warnings, and the mortality is not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Actually, do do you guys want to mention Macbeth and the
0: the Thundercats or whatever they're called? Those evil... The pack. The The pack, the the fox
3: and the jackals. What are they based on? Are they based on anything particular? Uh, As I recall, Greg was satiring American gladiators at the time, although some people say Power Rangers as well. (laughs) A
0: little bit, yeah. And there's, there's uh, kind of some anime tropes in them. They, they they might have been in Fist of the North Star. But yeah, um,
3: the leader yeah. of the pack, Fox, she's the one who becomes
0: Xanatos' wife. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Be um,
3: sure can pick them. <laughs> the, <laughs> They actually yeah. end up having one of the most stable relationships I've ever seen in this type of fiction. Wow.
1: Interesting. And it begins because she
3: goes to prison for him. <laughs> That was nice, actually, that bit. If that leads to
0: to an actual relationship, that's, uh, that's a nice touch.
3: In the first episode of season two, he arranges to get her out of prison on an early parole with one of his big elaborate schemes that's really a distraction.
0: <laughs> Time off for bad behaviour. Um, the Macbeth thing was funny for us because um, it's... Uh, I don't know if they mentioned it in the episode. It's unlucky to say the, the word Macbeth, the, the name of the Scottish play, uh, if you're in the theatre talking to someone else who works in theatre. So uh, there's an episode of uh, Blackadder the Third where these two superstitious actors keep, <laughs> like, crossing themselves repeatedly every time he mentions Macbeth, which he does every time. So when we watched the episode, every time they said Macbeth, which is a lot, we were doing that. <laughs> By the Scottish play, I assume you mean Macbeth. Ah! Not ah! <laughs> to all the stores, but we'll we may
2: come in. Ah!
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: what was that? We were exorcising evil spirits. Being but a mere butler, you will not know the great theatre tradition that one does never speak the name of the Scottish play. What, Macbeth?
1: Ah! Hot potato, the
4: sauce, but will make amends! Ah!
1: Oh, Lord, you mean you have to do that every time I say Macbeth? Ah! Hot potato, the sauce,
4: but will make amends! Ah! I it. Will you please stop saying that?
2: Always call it the Scottish play. So you want me to say the
4: Scottish play? Yes! <laughs> Rather
2: than Macbeth. Ah! Hot potato, the pack the will make
4: <laughs>
0: yeah. Say, what is all this hullabaloo, all this shouting and screaming and yelling blue murder? Why? It's like that play we saw the other day. What was it called? Uh... Macbeth? Sir? Ah! Hot potato, the Charles pack, will make amends. Ah! No, 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 no. It was, it, it was called Julius Caesar. Oh, yes, of course. Julius Caesar. Not Macbeth.
3: But um, I've seen that episode of Blackadder. I love Blackadder. That's oh, exactly What you're talking about? Is, is that John Reese Davis doing yes. the voice? Yes, it okay. is.
0: They were, from the sounds of it, going for like a Sean Connery thing, and um, he he kind of reminds me a bit of uh, uh, Slade Wilson, Deathstroke.
3: I guess I can see that when we we learn more about him in season two, and the biggest revelation is not that he's the Shakespearean Macbeth so much, as that he's the historical Macbeth. They ended up doing all this research into the actual history of the real Macbeth, which is a very different story than the Shakespeare nice. story, nice. and they put that on screen. As
1: witches, so
3: they oh, they the weird they, they,
0: are in it. <laughs> they researched the real Macbeth and basically brought that
3: guy forwards to to be this immortal. Is he a bounty hunter? What is he? He's not really a bounty hunter so much as okay. We need to get into season two territory. To Go stress. for it. But he and uh he was basically he was a this very noble guy in the, the 11th century. He was King Duncan was the villain, and that was actually true historically as well. The, Shakespeare kind of revised things to um be more politically expedient to King James, who was descended from Duncan. Right. And and throughout all this, Macbeth Shakespeare like, didn't want to be executed. <laughs> Very much so, so Macbeth and Demona forge an alliance they become friends actually in the in the uh, late eleventh century mid eleventh century actually and they make a bargain which does involve the weird sisters are Shakespearean elements where they are linked where by this time Demona is age she's gone completely gray Macbeth is young she regains her youth he ages and is stuck in the with the gray beard and gray hair that we've seen and they are linked through and made immortal or one can only die if one slays the other.
0: Nice. Again, that's a little bit Harry Potter, but I don't, it, it's possible. Joe Rowling, watched this, or that might be a, <laughs> uh, a little um, a thing that she she heard from someone else. But it's uh, it's, it's a, that's a nice complex bit of spell working. Yeah, I, I like the fact that they they've kind of combined magic and sci-fi in this. In fact, the uh, the Frankenstein reference and the uh, the the. The is it the final episode? Yeah, they make, um, and they make steel, cold, uh, cold, cold stone. Stone. Yeah. yeah, with the cybernetic eye and a cybernetic arm because the nineties. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I like I like that's my territory. You know, the the idea of uh, magic and, and science being that combined. that kind
1: of fits that that sort of spell linking them together does kind of fit with the idea of of how alliances would would be made between clans as well, that there would be elements of, um, basically, if either of us breaks this alliance, then there's going to be things happen that cause harm to them too. Hmm. So it's sort of this mutually assured destruction, I suppose, to prevent them from
0: breaking their contract. Can, yeah. any, can anyone explain the abundance of Star Trek actors on the voice cast? Because
3: there's loads. Happily. <laughs> okay, go for it. Well, basically, it started with Marina Sirtis. She was the first person to audition for the show, period. And she auditioned for Lisa first. And they said, you know, we have another character you can audition for. And they gave her the Demona sides. She was the first person to read for Demona. And she nailed it right then and there. And so and for, Jonathan Frakes came in later. And actually, they, uh, he was briefly fired at one point. But Oh, geez. What for? Was he mouthing off? No, he wasn't mouthing off. They they record the first episode, then they record the second episode in a this really bad studio in the middle of a hot summer day. Ooh. They they um the air conditioning wasn't working, so everyone was very uncomfortable, and the performances weren't up to snuff. And because Jonathan Frakes was the only new element in that particular episode, Greg Wiseman's bosses got really nervous, fired him, bl- blamed everything on him, and the person ended up recasting who I to this day Greg hasn't said publicly who it was for professional reasons. He don't do that. Gotcha. Didn't didn't end up working out, so they brought Frakes back in. Right. And then once they had Jonathan Frakes in there, it, it started out as okay. They only auditioned the only audition to write the regulars. After that, they were just cast people. We have this brother of Goliath, and he's got have this big, deep voice. Hey, how about Michael Dorn?
0: Of course, yeah. It was going to originally be Mr. Wolf himself. Uh, it was, uh, I could be wrong. Was he the one who was playing Coldstone?
3: Yes. Yeah. Okay, there you go, then in there talking about who should play who we've got these characters coming up and you have these Star Trek actors sitting in the next room you th- your mind goes towards Star Trek and mm. you start thinking I mean they ended up getting LeVar Burton Brent Spiner in season two they've Brent Spiner played a pretty major role they obviously they had Michelle Nichols in season one as Elisa Maz's mother nice and uh, they had Kate Mulgrew as uh, we'll get into this Queen Titania the, yes that Queen Titania <laughs>
0: Ah, so that would be the person who said in the Gathering of Gargoyles that you got me into Shakespeare in the, because of the Midsummer Night's Dream episode. Is that to do with that?
3: Yeah, Macbeth was just where it started. <laughs> in course. season two, they really brought in more Shakespeare references. Puck, Oberon, Titania. From the sounds of it,
0: it was Marina Setters being hired, and mm. then it was like a bunch of other Star Trek actors who they just sort of caught in and said, well, Marina's doing it, and, you know, and if she likes it, then it's probably quite good. Yeah.
3: And Marina okay. Sir, and I thought Marina Circus's performance as Demona, especially in the second season when you get to her backstory, is one of the underrated voice performances in,
4: yeah.
3: in, in animation. I mean I and maybe this is going a bit too far, but I'm going to go there anyway. I kind of liken her to, in a way to Mark Hamill and the Joker. You have this character who's known for playing this really nice person. I mean, Luke was also a really nice person, who plays this yeah. really evil villain. And does
0: oh, a really yeah. good job at it. It's, I suppose it's up there with uh, Keith David playing Goliath and being like totally noble and worthy as a hero, but also playing Dr. Facilia in The Princess and the Frog. So he's... Mama dare cut you off, her boy.
2: Now you're gonna get hitched, but hitching ties you down. You just want to be free, hop from place to place. But freedom takes green. <laughs> it's the green, it's the green, it's the green you. And when
0: I looked into your future It's the green that I see This evil schemer So yeah, those, those guys have got some range mm.
3: having, heard Keith, having heard Keith David sing At one of the conventions I was really happy to watch Princess and the Frog and Oh him. nice <laughs> awesome. What did he sing? Oh, He just got up and started singing karaoke There's a video of it on YouTube But it was, it was the conventions It was midnight, we were all partying And he just got up and started singing
2: Shake my hand Come on boys, won't you shake a poor sinner's hand?
4: Yes! Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready?
0: ready? So and this is a, a question more about the gargoyles themselves how does having a range of mental ages across the team affect the show we kind of touched on this earlier but it, it come, this is a, a chance to explore the uh, episodes after that first five because each character gets one episode there and you've got the, the, the younger trio and then you've got the older hands um, so, so how does that play into the storytelling
3: I would say it helps them grow up as well, helps them, I mean, then the pilot they start out, and even Greg would say this, sort of these medieval Ninja Turtles, and then Mm -hmm. we get to see them develop more, I'm not saying the Ninja Turtles aren't three-dimensional, but at the time they were mostly known for the 87 cartoon, but they got to develop as characters themselves, I mean, I love that, say, Lexington, even though he made a mistake in trusting the pack, was ultimately correct that they do need to reach out to other people, not just hide alone up in the castle.
0: I feel like the um, uh, people behind the TMNT Nickelodeon cartoon that came, started in two thousand twelve and appears still going um, are big fans of Gargoyles because there's an episode of uh, well, for a start, the way they introduce villains is very similar in that rather than like pitting them against pre-existing guys it's it's like one guy in this case shredder who slowly brings in more people to sort of do his work and, and to cross paths with the gargoyles and there's an episode where mikey falls in with a chuck norris type um uh, movie star rad brad and then he ends up completely and utterly disappointed that this star of the screen turns out to be a scumbag in real life so it feels like they, they are fans of gargoyles
3: if Obama gets re-elected 10,000 years of darkness.
0: <laughs> that's, um, yeah, that's that's terrifying. Uh, but uh, it's, it's good to know that the real-life Xanatos won, isn't it? So that's, that's a very generous comparison, by the way.
3: Uh, Xanatos says a lot. Xanatos respects women. Let's start there, so. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a lot of other good stuff about Xanatos. So he's clever.
3: <laughs> Yeah, he's um, actually intelligent. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, uh, the, okay, the, the one episode that really sticks out uh, for me is Deadly Force. That was the first one that made me really sit up and take notice. Uh, for folks who haven't seen it, this is... Like, if you're going to start watching the DVD, you could do worse than just jumping straight to deadly force. At least the detective is just cooking in her home. um, One of the gargoyles...
3: Broadway. Broadway.
0: Broadway. um, Pops in on her, says hi, uh, and then is just uh, mucking around behind her, sees her gun just in the gun belt, pulls it out, starts playing around with it, accidentally fires off a shot, and is like, ugh, sorry. And then it cuts back to the kitchen and she's on the floor wounded. And this is like the cold open of the show and she might be dead. And the whole episode seemed like it's it. The repercussions of this sudden, terrible, unexpected, certainly unintentional violence are explored. And it's, it's a straight up like without being preachy. Hey kids, this is what almost certainly will happen if you start playing around with one of your parents' guns. And it's a really sobering episode to, to, uh, to, to watch.
3: Yeah. And when it moved into syndication, or rather to cable Disney, Toon Disney, later Disney XC, they wouldn't rerun that episode for over a decade. Because
0: <sighs> why would we show kids the upsetting consequences of violence when we could just show
3: kids consequence-free violence? And the funniest thing about that is that parents groups, which normally protest action shows like this, praise that episode for showing the consequences. People got it. That doesn't make any sense at all. Any parent watching that
0: uh, who is like, you know, I I can't imagine. I cannot imagine even Beth Grant herself watching that and going, this is a show about mutilating women that no one's going to think that. The immediate reaction from uh, Broadway is childlike terror. And, um, like, you know, apologies and trying to make things better, but like she's in hospital and she might not pull through like she's stable, but like, you know, he's suddenly a scared little kid and no adult could watch that and not go, I see what they're doing there. Mm. And one of the, of Greg Weissman's, um, remits with the violence was, to show the consequences. Um, it Like in the opening sequences. Like there's a big medieval war going on. And when the. The, <laughs> the uh, gargoyles show up. And start doing a lot of the trip maneuver. So it's like uh, they get attacked with swords. And they're like. I bat your sword aside. And scare you off. So it's a very kind of like. like I am not going to rip the limbs. Off of this human being. Type con- uh, uh, conflict. Uh, which is like customary, for the 90s in particular, they wouldn't even allow bullet guns on Spider-Man. They all had to be like laser guns with <laughs> little um, slit holes at the front that fired white square lasers in case children saw guns and felt that they were glamorised.
1: I think that actually there is, there is a, a context that makes that make sense in terms of the medieval battles because ultimately the people... <laughs> in the castle that they're trying to protect might want to form alliances with these people someday. That's a lot harder if your gargoyles have ripped them all to pieces.
0: I honestly feel like the fact that the 90s swung so hard towards protecting children is, has contributed to, to the glorification of FPS specifically related gun violence in entertainment. Yeah. Call of Duty became huge with young kids who were basically at that point um, let's see, so, Call of Duty, if they'd started playing it in their late teens, then that means that they were very little kids in the 90s when they weren't allowed to see anything violent or hear, like, they wouldn't say the word, allowed. they weren't allowed to say the words kill, or dead, or hell, um... On, on kids tv because like it was it was sanitized i hate the term politically correct i loathe it because it's misused and misapplied so often and basically it's used as in a negative sense of just don't be dicks to people like how is that a bad thing the reaction to that came about as a result of pushing too hard in that direction yeah. the 90s in 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 tv in particular the pendulum has now swung back so far that the biggest TV show is a game, is game of Thrones, which is lifeblood, is sadism. And all other adult TV has been affected as a result of that. You either have to copy it or at least acknowledge it and do something else entirely.
1: I think... You're onto something there, and I think there's it's it's the specific combination, or pot- is potentially the specific combination of um, overprotectiveness and being shielded from way too much, and having never been able to process what those consequences are, and I think it if that backlash comes in the form of right now i'm desperate to see the violence that i was kept from when i was a kid but i can't get my head around the idea that that violence might have consequences it's it's seeking a type of stimulation that they that there may be some hunger for that they've been denied but without the appreciation for what experiencing that brings.
0: It's like never being allowed sweets at all by your parents Mm. and then the moment you hit 18 and can go out and eat as many sweets as you want and they won't even know... (laughs) oh that's what I did man when I hit 18 I was just eating sweets um (laughs) but that's what happened to me I was basically I had an incredibly small sweetie allowance as a kid so as soon as I was actually able to buy stuff for myself I was like haribo and I was just cramming it down Mm. and my teeth got messed up as a result same with alcohol if you're denied alcohol for too long and it turns into this massive taboo the moment you're allowed you binge it
1: Well, it's 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 famine instinct. It's like and and this is an extreme version, but a a dog that's been that's gone stray and never knows where its next meal comes from. When that dog is given regular food, they will eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat until they make themselves sick because they literally in their head, they don't know when the next meal is coming. So they need to satiate that hunger um, but they they don't have the instinct to know when to stop eating.
3: As I say, it becomes yeah. a forbidden fruit scenario. I mean, yeah. you, you're yeah. denied it, and then you want too much, too much of it. Whereas, um, say, Deadly Forces episode, it teaches you: oh, yeah, these things exist. Fear and respect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and temperance, and the, the, I love the fact that the outcome of it is is Elisa saying to him. We both made mistakes. I, Effectively, I don't think she says it in exactly these words, but I need to take better care of my gun and make sure it is kept safe.
3: In season two, she keeps it in a lockbox.
1: Nice. There you go. Consequences. So basically then, people who did not get to process a lot of media violence when they were kids could well find themselves binge-watching Game of Thrones and binge-playing incredibly violent FPSs because they don't know when they're going to be taken away from them.
0: <coughs> Which is why the idea of, um, let's uh, change and evolve the video game industry. No! No,
4: don't, no, take, don't it from take my from games away! Oh my God, you're the right! The casuals taking my yeah oh my god also you
3: can't, you can't see me but I'm clapping right now <laughs> also and
0: this is another thing Autobots and Decepticons Mask and Venom Ninja Turtles and Foot Clan factions it's a two army thing you're on one side or you're the other you're the good guys or you're the bad guys and obviously you're the good guys even though the bad guys are really really cool like um, th- there's less bumbling bad guys now bad guys are just they're winners now
1: also, well, you get bad guys with lines and, and um, engagement, and
0: it was always a, a mistake to make villains bumbling,
4: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, because
0: it undersells their motives and their the execution of those motives. Yeah. I really, I mean, um, what's a really great example of a TV show? Like, uh, well, Avatar is obviously you know, gold standard for that, but any show that takes a villain's decision to do what they do and the way they execute that seriously rather than having them thrown in the mud and ridiculed by He-Man every week Mm. is selling people a better idea of Shades of Grey rather than it just being factions because we are in the most two-party system faction society that the world has ever experienced.
3: (sighs) I'm ashamed
0: of my country right now. (laughs) it's it's overly it's become overly simplified and uh, i don't want to go off on a political rant here that's a lie i do it's not even like you know all these shows were bad They did simplify where they could have explored, Mm. and the shows which explored more didn't tend to last that Mm. long.
1: And the major downside of constantly having bumbling villains is that you have people come away with the conclusion, well, how do you know a bad guy? Well, that's easy. They always fail. They never. If somebody is winning, they can't possibly be the bad guy.
0: If crime didn't pay, there would be very few criminals.
3: I mean, yeah, look at Xanatos on this show. He wins more often than he loses. Yeah. That's the, thing. but they were they were afraid to have
0: hum- uh, the 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 good guys slighted that uh, um you know stopped in their tracks you know even like thinking hard about can we even do this you know it's it's complex stuff especially when you're writing for kids that you have to be responsible for as well mm-hmm. you have to understand that. This episode you're doing may be the last episode of your show that they ever see. Mm -hmm. They might just never get a chance to see it again. So you've got to pack a lot into those 22 minutes. This one could actually um, end up being uh, fairly succinct and fairly short. But uh, what are the central themes across both seasons of Gargoyles? So if there's something which is begun in season one and then elaborated upon in season two, by all means, uh, explain and explore that. Uh, And you don't have to go into it in any massive amounts of detail. But if you're going to nail it down to what is Gargoyles really about, go for it.
3: It's about two things. Don't really don't judge a book by its cover. Stranger in a Strange Land, and these carry out throughout the entire show. I mean, some fans will debate who the main villain of the show is, Demona or Xanatos, and while I lean a little bit more towards Demona considering her overall goals and Xanatos and such, I mean the main villain is really more of a concept. It's actually, I would think, racism bigotry. Hmm. This really carries on, especially in season two when. The way season two ends. I mean, season two ends with the gargoyles being exposed to the world. Yeah, they, they are exposed by a group called the Hunters, who um, are a medi- are sort of a medieval clan of Scottish hunters who um, have been hunting Demona for over a thousand years. Surprise, surprise! This is her fault. <laughs> hmm. Just like most things are, and they end up. They they come to Manhattan on on these rumors. They hunt these gargoyles. They expose them to the world, thinking it would make them easier to hunt them, and. People are terrified. Unfortunately, the show ends at the end of season two, and although we got a comic book series that later continued things a bit, it was short it was short lived but um but even Goliath has to get over some of his prejudices as well. I mean he's not a perfect leader. I mean he wakes up in a pilot and he's pretty reacting understandably pretty negative to things. There's this moment where Elisa calls him out, "You're judging the city the way humans have judged you, yeah. You don't see that often in a cartoon show and i think what was refreshing to me about goliath especially at the time you see this more often now he was allowed to make mistakes He what he was allowed to not be perfect i mean most of the time leaders were i mean optimus prime in the 80s he was never wrong he was practically perfect
0: that in fact may have led to the decay of the transformers films the idea that optimus prime is always perfect and always right uh, when when he's doing terrible things, he's still always right. That's, that's severely wrongheaded. Um, and it's, it's such a bastardization of the character that, that Peter Cullen originally came in and decided to, rather than playing him gung-ho the way that Tommy Lee Jones plays Chip Hazard in um, uh, Small Soldiers again... Got, got I mean, Like, if you like gargoyles, you probably should see this film because the Gorgonites, while they are kind of much more pacifists, do have more of a sort of a, a gargoyly feel about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, but they're up against guys who believe that they're the heroes when they're warmongering soldiers and caricatures of soldiers who are obsessed with the idea of war but have no concept of the consequences. Uh, Cullen played him as grave, as quieter and as uh, you know more reasoned and like he was modeling it after his brother and, and that sense of um uh, of not being certain that what you're doing is absolutely righteous. And that should have been ingrained the whole way through that you know that, but
4: that
1: that really clashes with his actions. Yeah. There is a a cognitive dissonance there between the way he is the way he's talking and what he's saying and what he's mm. doing.
3: It I, doesn't make sense. I agree. And then when we get to that scene at the end of the third movie where he executes Sentinel Prime, I look at it and I'm thinking, how is this different than Megatron blowing Ironhide away in the 1986 movie? Bingo. And the exactly. shuttle. That's
0: the most sickening moment in the series for me so far. That made me ill. The, the, like, I can understand him ripping out Megatron's spine because he's killed Megatron before, although it was after a, a desperate struggle to the death and there was no other choice. But... You know, it's still pretty horrible the way he does it, but just like lock and load and then shoot Leonard Nimoy in the head. It's, it's troubling as hell. So from the sounds of it, Goliath is what they could have and should have done with the Optimus Prime character in any of the animated shows, apart from Transformers Prime, which is really good.
3: Yeah, it is. And another theme I would say is hope, because ultimately Goliath is an optimistic character. They could have gone the other way on that one, made him really yeah. grim, and despite his appearance brooding. and brooding, he, he does, he can and does brood, but he's ultimately an optimist. He is looking for a better tomorrow. I mean, and season two really goes into this. I mean, season two really expands the world. We discover that they're not the last of their kind, that there are other hidden clans still around and that the eggs from the rookery did survive.
1: Yay! I'm so pleased about that. That was one of the things that made me cry when they said that the eggs were all gone.
3: Mm. Yeah, oh no, they were long story short, they were taken to the mystical island of Avalon, home of the fairies and um, although it was abandoned at the time, that's a I'm going into too deep into the mythology right now, but um, and they're raised there by Princess Catherine the Magus and the boy Tom, and by, by the time we get to season two, the Goliath arrives on Avalon and he meets these gargoyles that are his clan's children and the biological daughter he and Demona had, who is appropri- oh. was appropriately named Angela.
0: Oh, actually, I saw a picture of Angela. Didn't tie up with with what that would actually make her. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, the, the themes that appear to be not judging a book by its cover, that's a repeated one and, um,
3: stranger in a strange land,
0: stranger in a strange land, feeling isolated yeah. and, uh, being able to harness hope to actually accomplish something good, which is one of the, my favorite themes.
3: Yeah. We're, we're someone who allowed all the tragedies that happened to become a true cynic. That's Demona. Yeah. Mm. There's a really good episode
0: uh, called Temptation uh, early in the day when um, Demona is trying to draw Brooklyn over to her way of thinking and and to to join her in being utterly cynical and uh, having no faith in humanity and it's a it's a genuine conflict for him to to be able to step back from
1: That's probably one of my favorite episodes. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I love about that is the fact that she she does it not by lying to him. That's that's the kicker. She does it by telling him a version of the truth, mm. but one that's filtered through her way of looking at things.
0: That's Seth. Seth did that to
3: <laughs> and she gets even more dangerous in the second season. There's this art called City of Stone. I don't want to relearn her backstory in Macbeth. But there's this modern story where she actually manages to turn everyone in Manhattan, all the humans to stone at night. And she recreates the massacre. She has on-screen kills in the second season.
4: Jeez.
3: Ooh, that sounds like she has some serious stuff going on. there. And, I, and despite all this, she still manages to be pitiable. And and even though she's a very dark shade of gray, she doesn't fall into the blackest of the blacks. That was some very talented writing to pull that off. Mm.
1: Well, it, ultimately, I think that is to do with motivation. It, it, how well you sell the motivation of your villains depends on how they will then come across. Because for somebody to be like the the well what as you say greg the blackest of the black you know the the really really dark villains are the ones that we cannot understand in any sense why they're doing what they're doing the ones that we cannot comprehend those are the really really dark ones the ones that manage those really interesting shades of gray are the ones whose motivations are uh not necessarily clear because it doesn't always have to be simple but understandable you know we can we can comprehend that complexity we can um, we can sort of look at that and think well you know not necessarily I would do that but I can see why they would do that and it makes sense to people um, and that is what makes those bad guys that the really interesting and engaging ones Um, Just to to add another theme to the pile, um, one that, again, is kind of solidified at the very end of season one for me, but one that I felt was quite important, is the idea of mere survival not being enough, that simply existing, that there must be more than that to life for it to have some meaning.
0: It comes down to their territory. They, uh, um, it's Goliath says that the tower is just where we live, but the whole city and and by extension mankind is is has become their territory, and they have to um, live to protect them rather than simply guarding me and mine.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, and and it's it's something that he discusses with his brother, um, this idea that if they're going to betray who they are um, for the sake of survival, then what is the point of
3: that survival? Exactly, and Demona just feels that survival is enough, though well, in her case her ultimate goal is genocide of humanity. Mm-hmm.
1: Jesus. Yes, although I wonder if part of the reason for that is because she's – seen the last thousand years and they haven't
3: that's part of it uh
1: she's been surviving more or less on her own for a long time
3: That is definitely part of it, but for me what it really is is that she knows ultimately deep down that she is the one responsible for the massacre, that she is responsible for what happened to her clan. And she has a guilt complex as big as Peter Parker's, but while Peter Parker internalizes all of his guilt, she externalizes externalizes it onto everything else. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Greg, what's the story with season three? Because I've heard nothing but bad things about it, but uh, obviously – um, it doesn't continue this exposure to humankind, which kinda of reminds me of Hellboy Two, by the way, the whole, you know, they will turn on you aspect of that.
3: Well um, it, it, so what was it? It does, but they go about it in the most juvenile, simplistic way possible. Greg Wiseman wrote the first episode of the of the okay. first of the third season. They were so negotiated whether or not he would actually produce the rest of the of the third season. Then before he was even done, they hired his replacements and they brought people over from the nineties X-Men cartoon. Who they made a good cartoon, but it wasn't the same thing. They didn't have time to familiarize themselves with the characters. I mean, and they mostly. I mean, and Greg Wiseman created this group in the first episode called the called the Quorum, they were sort of this respo- a response to the reveal of the gargoyles that were led by one of the uh, Scottish hunters that I mentioned earlier, who um who went incognito. They were sort of this KKK group that was that Jesus. And this is Greg Wiseman's idea. He handled this idea much better in the comics that we ended up seeing, but um, seeing they were supposed to be composed mostly of frightened citizens more than anything else. He wanted to bring some three dimensionality to that group as well, whereas in the third season, there were mostly these masked thugs. They were basically the Foot Clan. All right. And most of the writers and producers had been were gone by that point. They brought in people who were unfamiliar with it. Goliath was tossing out one-liners like a action star. Oh god! So, uh, hey, mouse, say cheese. Yeah, kinda, kinda, not quite that bad, but almost that bad. That bad. dry, I when... cool wit like
0: that, I could be an action
3: hero. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the characters mostly turned into parodies of them of themselves. Demona only appeared in one single episode that season, and.
0: The animation's changed as well, and we're watching a bit of it now on uh, youtube yep. This looks like... Um...
3: Yeah, and Xanatos himself is completely emasculated. At the end of Season 2, Xanatos does make peace with the clan after the reveal to the world. He invites them back to the castle. There's a lot of things that, things that lead to this happening. It's not really it's not really overly simplistic, but he was it was supposed to be more of a gray situation in the third season. We do see that in the comics where they still don't trust him. He's not out to harm them, he won't destroy them while while they sleep, but he will still manipulate them when he sees fit. But in the third season they pretty much turn him into Bruce Wayne without the angst. Right. What what the hell is Bruce Wayne without the angst? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: He's—I I guess that just makes him Tony Stark in the '90s Iron Man cartoon.
3: No, he, even he had some angst there. Well,
0: oh Jesus!
3: No, wait, Tony Stark in season one of the Iron Man cartoon.
0: Oh right, okay. So I—I—I mean, I, I, I don't remember much about uh, that cartoon. I think I—I I tuned out when uh, he recharged his Iron Man suit with a Walkman. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, he was like, well, sound waves are energy much like anything else. So if I just put on some good, something with a good beat, like Rachmaninoff's third, and then he just sort of plugs, he uses his 357 7, millimeter jack in his Iron Man suit, listens to about a minute or so of Rachmaninoff. Well, it would have to be merely seconds for the animated uh, show. And then he goes, right, that's my Iron Man suit fully powered up then. Let's go and take it to... Fu, uh, Fu Manchu um, <laughs> Fing Fang Foom
1: okay, If you could make uh, the suit Run on converted sound energy It would be a lot more efficient To put solar panels down the back of yeah.
0: it I mean ultimately the, the energy is coming From the AA batteries in the Walkman Am I wrong? <laughs> uh,
1: if that's what they're trying to If imply, Iron Man's suit runs on
3: double A's You
1: can't electrocute yourself By listening to a Walkman
3: I yeah. cannot imagine why it took Marvel so long to catch up to DC animation. Jeez. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there
0: were they were better on Marvel animations yeah. in the 90s, yeah. X-Men and Spider-Man, and then there was the Iron Man show.
1: This uh, episode of season three that we're looking at, by the way, the first thing they appear to have done with Elisa is put her in a Lois Lane dress. Nice. Which is exactly what Greg Wiseman said he did not want to do with Elisa, make her Lois Lane.
3: Or Judge uh, Dredd. Is that the blue dress? Yes. You're, yep. looking at, you're looking at his episode. That was Goliath and Lisa's attempt to go out on their first actual date. Ah. Right. Because they, okay. they do end up acknowledging the feelings they have for each other and kissing at the end of season two. That's how it ends. So,
0: so who rendered this non-canon? Was this rendered non-canon by Greg himself? Yes. Or was this the fans deciding that or what?
3: Greg decided that the fans just happened to agree with him.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So, so was this like an official decree online at some point?
3: Yes, it was. And then he had the chance to do the comic book. He redid the first episode of season three as a comic, and then he, as two issues of the comic, and then he went off in his own direction for another 11 issues. It only let la- no, no, 10 issues. It only lasted 12 issues, unfortunately, and then there was a spinoff because he had planned a lot of spinoffs also because, oh, you're going to like this story. At the time, disney in the 90s was considering buying marvel comics who would have thought that would have ever have happened <laughs> and <laughs> at the time yeah
0: both of them were uh, actually no disney were were um were doing okay but they were already in a bit of a slump considering that the second half of the decade uh, was not was not bringing them the kind of bucks that the first half of the decade had done
3: Yeah, and Michael Eisner got interested in Marvel Comics, and they took a look at it, and Marvel was in chaos at the time and said, no, we're not going to touch this. And they had Mm -hmm. Gargoyles running, and they issued this decree to develop spinoffs. Maybe we can spin off our own universe out of this show. And Greg was all too eager to do this. He came up with these eight spinoffs that could have been really good shows. Then the regime changed, and none of them ended up getting made. Uh,
0: which uh, shows were they going to be, or do you not know? Uh,
3: one of them was he did as a comic. It was called Bad Guys, sort of like Suicide Squad. Some former Don't. villains working for the government. Not Xanatos or Demona or any of the really big villains, but I think the only villain on that team who appeared in Season 1 was Dingo of the Pack, the Australian, who, who does end up going on a bit of a redemption arc in Season 2.
0: Is he kind of the captain boomerang of the group?
3: Yeah, he kind of is. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Well, he turns out to be uh, a, well, he turns out to be a pretty decent character.
0: In all seriousness, considering that they have finally managed to conclude Samurai Jack, it seems like Netflix or some other direct TV channel could recruit Greg Weissman to do a gargoyles. Like they couldn't even call it season four if season three is not canon, like. Goggles Return. Goggles Revenge. revenge. <laughs> that would go against Goliath's philosophy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, just Gargoyle's Return. Something which was basically a look gargoyles fans all love this show let's bring it back and remind everyone why gargoyles was great in the first place Mm. and just do one season that just like what greg wanted to do and finish it off that seems like it's feasible you know get it done in 10 episodes
3: Mm -hmm. the man filler all the man literally has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of notes and timelines and and material that he had planned to do for the show he never stopped working on it even after it ended i mean he he publishes the official timeline on the Garg wiki cons- with all the canon events that happened in the show and the comics. It's 50 pages. His unedited outline is 300 pages long. So the show only so, 65 episodes only scratched the surface. So he'd be good to go then. Yeah. I'm kind of reminded of Christopher Tolkien going through his father's notes. And Yeah.
0: Well, I hope it doesn't get to the point where Greg dies and someone else to has to has to carry this one off. He's still a relatively young man. Um, so, uh, so what? do you know what he's working on right now? Season 3 of Young Justice. Of course, yeah. Okay, right. Well, that is literally exactly what I'm talking about in principle. Young Justice fi- finished at the end of Season 2 with a very kind of like, uh, What? moment, and fans just had to be satisfied enough with that. So Season 3 is very much a kind of, Right, here's actually what then would have happened. So, it's not out of the realms of possibility, question mark?
3: No, it isn't, especially with the uh, mis- 90s nostalgia just getting started i mean we hope so i mean we've been the fandom has been trying to convince disney for 20 years now and we did end up getting comics out of them we got the dvds out of them those dvds of the only came out because the fans kept making noise
0: yeah yeah
3: so although it took 10 years to get the second half of season two on dvd
0: oh seriously seriously when did So when did the first... So the first one would have been like
3: um, 2004. Yeah, the second so one... So does that, that mean that season two was 2014? The first half of season two was 2005. Oh, sorry, so, five. Yeah. The second half of season two was 2014. What the
0: hell, guys? So I, I don't... I, I, okay, right. For a start, I don't get, on the one hand... Why they wouldn't just make the two parts of season two at the same time and release them at the same time, maybe as, as a box set with, with all of them. Um, and secondly, what the hell, like, obviously the sales weren't enough to warrant a second part of season two. So what the hell could the fans say to convince the studios, yes, we will buy them in droves? <laughs> we just kept making noise on the internet. <laughs> And and Andy Dufresne them, and eventually they gave in.
3: And then season two came out, and it sold. The letter after season two came out and sold really well. There was a joke among the fandom that they pulled a Cartman from South Park with his theme park, you can't come. They tried the you can't have it technique, sales technique.
0: Nice. So if I was just to sort of like look right now on uh, on Amazon and just see if uh, Gargoyles. Season 2. They're not available in the UK, unfortunately, at all, as far as I can tell. We had to get them imported. Um, yeah, there you go. Season 2, Volume 2 is right there. I did not know it took that much that much longer to, uh, to get the other ones out.
3: Ultimately, the other day, Disney never really quite knew what they had here. They never knew what to do with it.
0: I, I was... wonder how long it's going to take the fans of Gravity Falls to tell Disney... Please, for the love of all that is holy, release a Blu-ray of all of Gravity Falls.
3: Well, there's a lot of, I mean, Disney doesn't release most of their TV animated shows on DVD at all. So, I mean, yeah. that, I, mean I know, for example, and I've never actually watched it, but Kim Possible was really popular. I don't think that got an entire DVD release. You know, what? I would be happy
0: to get them in streaming it's better than nothing. I would be like j- just to be able to buy them from Amazon, like just you know, video on demand. Oh. Even happier if it's in HD. You know.
3: Oh, oh, about that. Um, they are streaming on iTunes. They are streaming on Prime. Unfortunately, they are edited down. They're the versions of the episodes that were edited for oh. for d- for tuned. Toon Disney so there's lines of dialogue that are cut scenes scenes that are just removed I mean action sequences some episodes are really heavily butchered there's a line of dialogue and a scene in, in a later scene that references a gun and they chop it off so badly you don't know what the hell they're talking about well
0: let's see our earlier point about um, babying children and the uh, possible negative backswing effects of that So, I mean, yeah, basically I ended up buying all of Gravity Falls uh, in in streaming anyway, simply because I figured if Sod's Law occurred and they immediately released the Blu-ray as soon as I'd spent 40 quid, it's better for everyone. So that's why I'm less reticent for... To, you know, I, I'm just going to keep waiting
3: for the DVD. Oh I, know, for the DVD. Oh, oh, I know exactly how I feel. I first bought the Kill Bill Blu rays because I got tired of waiting for the Whole Bloody Affair version to come mm. out. I figured, okay, I'm going to buy these and he's going to announce them. Unfortunately, that still hasn't happened, but yeah. that's a different topic. Well, I mean, like,
0: I've never really gotten the fascination in wanting to watch The Whole Bloody Affair anyway, simply because it's, it's just watching the two films back to back without credits and without a couple of interstitial scenes. Like, uh, You wouldn't get that uh, um, recap at the beginning of Kill Bill Volume 2, would you?
3: No, you wouldn't. Although, Uh, I'm curious. I guess I am curious to see what the original version was like.
0: I, I, I would like to, to see it as an alternate, definitely. Um, but uh, it's now been so long with them as two films, and they're so perfect as those two films um,
3: for and me. We always watch them back, back to back, anyway. Yeah, me do too. Do. Me too. <laughs> uh,
1: every year on my birthday,
3: I well, not kill Bill year, one I, and two
1: back to back. I do. I love hearing that. <laughs> <me> saying,
3: <laughs> I do
0: distinctly remember me saying to you, "Right, it's your birthday. You can watch whatever film you want." And you said Kill Bill, and then Kill Bill Volume Two. And I thought I. <laughs> i understand more every year why i married this woman <laughs>
3: i love hearing this
0: <laughs> so um i think that's pretty much everything we've got on gargoyles um are there any other major moments in season one and you can mention moments in season two which uh, you just just our favorite moments for you that you um, would like to at least mention
3: Oh, the entire four-parter City of Stone in season two. It's in the first half of season two. It's, uh, again, the backstory of Demona and Macbeth, and that had a profound impact on me. I was 14 when that aired, and it got me interested in Shakespeare. Yes, I'm one of those people who who, who Greg is referred to as, as he's gotten them interested in Shakespeare. But more than that, I was 14. This aired. And I saw just how tragic the story was, and yet how optimistic at the same time. And it taught me at a young age the power of something as simple as telling a story. It made me want to become a writer myself, that initial four-parter. And Demona has been – granted, I know that there's objectively better characters in fiction. She's actually my favorite character in the realm of fiction just because of what that character – means to me and the impact she had on where I went forward in life, how I went to film school. I majored in screenwriting and producing. And I'm currently, and she, and anytime I write a uh, villainous woman in a book or or a script, there's always a little bit of demona in there. That influence is going to be there forever.
0: (laughs) Hmm. But it's good to have that kind of model for, I must have a character at least as complex as this to, uh, to then um, like to, to have yourself a standard. I love that.
3: Definitely, I just like loved watching the characters develop over time. I mean, it by the end of the sixty-five episodes, they're very different than they were in the first episode. And I'm not talking mm. about just the leads; even minor background characters get their own mini arcs. Yeah, Greg and Greg would go on to do the similar things in Spectacular Spider-Man.
0: I don't. I actually thinking about it. I I don't believe you've finished watching season two of what it. What are you shaking your head at? You don't even know what I'm going to say? No, you've seen Spectacular Spider-Man.
1: Young Justice.
0: Young Justice, yeah. You haven't finished watching that, yeah. so we have to do that and and, uh, and finish watching that. Yeah,
3: and, and Xanatos is a character that you can tell influences other villains that Greg likes, right? There's plenty of Xanatos in Tombstone and in Norman Osborn and yeah. Spectacular Spider-Man, and there's definitely a lot of Xanatos in The Light and Young Justice. Yeah,
4: yeah.
0: Um, so, I mean, the, the question I had at the very beginning uh, that we can probably just finish off with uh, is is uh, why is this series special to its fans? I'll, like, before I open the floor to you guys, what I saw in the gar- Gargoyles Gathering um, extra was very similar to what you see when you watch brown coat documentaries of just this whole kind of... Well, I felt like I was very alone through high school and um, that I was finally able to connect with a community and and what is best defined as the best aspect of the internet to me as being able to find isolated people like yourself and not feel quite so isolated. There is of course a horrible flip side to that, but this is the best side of that.
3: The, The Gargoyles fandom as a whole is a very, it's mostly a pretty close knit group. I mean, it's those conventions became like an extended family reunion year after year. Most of us actually ended up getting to know each other, and we had Greg Wiseman every year, who was definitely a major part of that, when those conventions were still going on. We did it for 13 years. That's a good run. <laughs> yeah, geez. We only managed, what, like four years for our convention circuit? Yeah. We might
0: come back at some point. Uh,
1: the Fellowship Festival managed mm-hmm. 3
0: mm no i mean 4 years for the uh, Godzilla yeah, planet yeah, I yeah. I was
1: just adding that as another one that we
0: participated
1: yeah. in and felt had that but same those kind were
0: of only powered view. forwards by uh, the lord of the rings films the moment that the films were done the yeah, fellowship I guess festival was done lost so interest. that yeah. that that proves that gargoyles is more powerful than the lord of the rings
3: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't think so, but <laughs> yeah, I
0: believe there are still other Lord of the Rings fandom uh, circuits.
3: Oh yeah, definitely. But um, I just the characters on the show mostly feel like real people, and and I know Elisa Mazza, who's become one of my favorite characters as I've grown up. Also, I didn't quite appreciate her when it was initially on, but she's she could have easily been April O'Neil, and she wasn't. In some ways, mm. I think she's tougher than Goliath is.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I think for me it was there was a big element that that kept taking me by surprise to have this central character be not only female but a a woman of colour, and have such significant um, elements of her family brought into it, Um, but you know for her ethnicity not to be a, a significant plot mover. Um, certainly not on a regular basis. I don't know if it, it comes in to any degree in in season two. A little bit, um, and then and then the when we met the captain as well. Mm. Um, and I I heard her, she's walking into the office, and I hear captain, and I'm like, and just in my head, it's going to be this sort of old guy, and it was uh, Rachel Yeah.
3: Yeah, Elisa was always going to be a woman of color. Originally, she was going to be Hispanic. Her last name was Elisa Chavez, not Maza. They ended up giving the Chavez name to the police captain. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they cast Sally Richardson and they found out that her parents were African-American and Native American, and they thought that would be a very interesting background to give to Elisa. Nice, so she inherited that from her voice actor. Mm. And in season two, during the World Tour, we have an episode in Nigeria where her mom's ancestry is from. And we have another episode in... Flagstaff Arizona where the where her uh, father's ancestors are, fa- are from or her or her grandfather actually lived at the time
0: that's going to be really gratifying for a voice actor to uh, to have elements of yourself drafted into the character and to have the character shaped around you and and to feel like you are part of that character and that's that that, that happened with uh, Maureen and her actually the, yeah Sort of wove elements of her.
3: Yeah, they, the yeah they. And they even took headshots of Sally Richardson and used them to redesign Elisa a little bit to make her look like. Oh, nice. And something similar happened later on, ten years later in the comic. There's one fan who I'm going to. Call out named Zara Fazal. She's a woman of color, a Pakistani American, grew up in North Carolina. She went to the conventions, would participate in. Is it. she in that um, video? Yes, yeah, she is. I think,
0: we might, I think I might remember her. Yeah. she said she was interested in voice acting.
3: Yeah, she be. Yeah, she it, she did become a professional actress. I saw her one woman show about growing up Muslim in America, which she did a tour on. Oh, and fantastic. she and she had a character sort of modeled after her in a comic book named Cherry, who is a. Uh, Muslim who is a Muslim and a Muslim Goth girl who is also a high ranking member of the Illuminati, which we which it expands upon more in the comic books than it does in the uh, we get maybe one up ep- one or two episodes dealing with them very mysteriously in season two which their name dropped in the first season but season three the comic really blows them out of the water we find out that their leadership is um, is the last Fisher King, Sir Percival, who holds the Holy Grail. <laughs> really, really?
0: <laughs> no, I believe it. I just, I, um, I, I feel like I need to uh, get the comics. As well. This is it. I don't want to commit to doing a season two on this one again. I'm going to have to give a hard no, folks. I might, however, watch season two in my own time. And I know Lyra, who's really loved watching season one, would definitely be up she
1: for has. it. She has. She's really, really embraced it.
3: Yeah. Uh, you know what? I'm. I'm willing to do this right now. I mean, you can edit this part out. I mean, I haven't become a patron yet, though. I plan to, but they're only 10 bucks a piece. I'm willing to send, export you the DVDs for season two.
0: No, that's okay. I mean, we'll get that. We'll get the DVDs. That's that. The, the issue of buying the DVDs isn't the problem. It's the time. Oh. It's the fact that, I mean, i just doing movie a day means we don't even have clear evenings to watch this kind of stuff. Yeah, We've had to, um, like, you know, after this year, we're going to be moving on to doing, um, Uh, like seasons. So we'll be doing like a Spielberg season and a a del Toro season. Nice. Um, But even like with that, we'll have, some time to be able to watch more stuff Mm. but it's been jam-packed this year just like coming to cram in a movie every night just to be able to talk about it and
1: in stuff that we actually want to watch just for ourselves i haven't had chance to watch any of the handmaid's tale yet which i really wanted to see i
0: want to watch preacher right now but uh yeah side note i did in fact watch a couple of episodes of preacher season two that evening did not like it at all don't like most adult tv now all the same so so yeah it's it's not the it's not the affording the DVDs it's the the time about them but the other thing is because Lyra likes to watch that stuff that's why we haven't watched season 2 of Transformers Prime yet because we have to get me and Lyra and Sharon in the room at the same time watching stuff and that doesn't happen very often um Because like on our weekends, we tend to go out and walk around and do stuff and
3: um I got that you're watching movies all week you want to do you want to get out of the house.
0: Exactly, and when I'm uh, I'm editing uh, my, on my butt all uh, all day, and uh, so like if if Lyra comes home, I wouldn't want to then watch Gargoyles with Lyra, but not with Sharon. And then when Sharon so I, I don't want to watch work, Gargoyles with Sharon, but not with Lyra. <laughs> yeah. So Correct. the 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 way forward tends to be we we watch it together, and Lyra watches stuff on her own, which makes me feel less like I'm bonding with her. So that's why us having to do season one like thirteen episodes is a nice manageable amount.
4: Fifty
3: two you say that thing—the
4: entire pack of cards.
3: the ironic thing is that when they ordered 52 episodes Greg almost had a nervous breakdown because he had no idea how they were going to do 52 episodes in less than 10 months mm-hmm.
0: uh, again this is the way network programming happens though isn't it like you get you get the uh, a nice safe Manageable thirteen episode first run, and then like, it was the same with the Transformers originally. Yeah. That first season's quite short. Then season two is stretched across four discs because yeah. it's
3: that huge. That never happens anymore, though, with animation. Is that not? That's not actually what happened. They they keep it even. Yeah, m- mostly, or, or they might go from thirteen to twenty six, or twenty six to thirteen. But you you're yeah. never going to get a cartoon show an entire season that's over fifty episodes anymore. I haven't seen that yeah. happen.
1: What's each. that's a a year's worth, isn't it? And that's not how they arrange TV seasons yeah. in America.
0: Batman the Animated Series was similar as well. In fact, it's all messed up in terms of actually when season two ends and season three begins. Mm. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I still think that we are in a, a golden age of animation with some of the just absolute best stuff coming out. I agree. Things like Steven Universe and uh, uh, Gravity Falls, God rest its soul. Um, just some really great stuff. As much as I love Ulysses 31, yeah. it, the the older stuff is so simplistic, with the exception of the original version of Mysterious Cities of Gold, which is way better than Season 2, which I still quite like, but the original Mysterious Cities of Gold is incredibly complex. Dungeons
1: and Dragons as well has, has a degree of complexity to it.
0: Yeah, it has a degree.
3: They had Michael Reeves on as a head writer, I believe, who worked on this show. <laughs> D&D. Yeah.
1: Seriously.
0: Yeah. That would stand to reason, actually.
1: That makes so much sense. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: we should do a and d show.
1: We definitely should do a and d show. I
0: don't know, guys. Uh, we, we might need sponsorship on this one. I don't think Sharon's keen enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you want
1: to hear me wax lyrical about my first animated show, crushes, then, you know.
0: And if you want that. to hear me do small unicorn impersonations, I can do that too. <laughs> Okay. Also, Frank Welker.
1: <laughs> Multiple Welker. Yeah.
0: Indeed, yeah. Welker's across both of course. So, like, you know, when that that that, that writer's like, "Hey, I, I wrote for D and D," and and uh, Frank Welker's like, "Was I on that show?" <laughs> "Yes, you were the Unicorn." i like, <laughs> and oh. the Dragon." Didn't he do TMS Yeah, he as was. Well? He was damn
3: <laughs> What a great voice. But yeah, Michael, Michael Reeves. If you've ever watched a cartoon in that era, you know Michael Reeves was working, wrote episodes of Batman the animated series before going over the gargoyles. Oh, nice. Uh, the one where Gordon gets shot. Oh, I um, am the night. That was Michael Reeves' script. I am the night. Okay, sorry. I was thinking of Over the Edge. Different Gordon. Yeah, different Gordon, but uh, it's been a long time since I've watched I should watch Batman the Animated Series again. Like, I need an excuse
0: to. <laughs> we would probably talk about TV so much more if we weren't under such pressure to cover it in this level of depth. If we could just meander and chat shit about TV and, and animated shows, mm-hmm. it'd be so much easier, but we've got this reading. Yeah. So we've taken two hours on Gargoyle Season 1. I think we, that was a really good show for a show that we were pretty, like, entirely unfamiliar with up until a few weeks ago. So so, um thank you so so much greg for keeping us on the straight and narrow
3: well thank you for having me on
0: it's been an absolute You're pleasure Very
1: welcome it's been really good having you here
0: yeah and when spectacular gets uh, renewed for a third season because uh disney realizes the error of its ways in um stopping spectacular starting ultimate instead
3: <laughs> are they doing a new Spider-Man show i think so and um I call it right now spider-man Lord expectations yeah anyway nothing's ever gonna really
0: beat spectacular it's gonna take something pretty special but um, yeah I mean I just as long as it doesn't have animation like Teen Titans go and a tone like Teen Titans go and a running time like Teen Titans go and a show <laughs> format like Teen Titans go and man of action behind its every movement that will be good for me man of average. Man of average. Bazing! Okay.
1: And on that bombshell. <laughs> but they
0: do sell toys well. <laughs> massive, massive thanks to our special sponsors this month. That would be Dan Mayer, Stephen Lowe, Pascal Dooley, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron LeCluze, Timothy Green, Mark Lush, David Garcia Abril, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Those are our special $15 patrons If they disappeared tomorrow, like a huge chunk of our Patreon would just disappear and we would be, I mean, not just sad, terrified. Terrified, I tell you. So thank you guys for doing what you do. And uh, you're the best. Thank you very much to Nicholas Kosky. That name rings a bell. for sponsoring this episode actually yeah him along with joel robinson uh, basically uh, they uh, they were the ones who uh, put together the, the gargoyle sponsorship uh so uh, yeah thanks to nicholas and joel for that one uh we hope you've enjoyed what we did with it greg is nicholas your friend yes you mentioned him before yes yeah.
3: is. i've known him since fourth grade we went to school together
0: that would explain it. Okay. Um, so did he did he mention, oh, I'm doing this thing, you should talk to them?
3: No, yeah. he didn't. I first found out about it on Twitter, and then I emailed you guys, and then after he wrote back and invited me on, I called... I called him up and said, hey, uh, do you know who just invited me on? And then afterwards, for about five minutes into the phone call, he mentioned that he was one of the patrons for this. Nice. <laughs> so, on behalf of Nicholas, you're welcome. <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, like,
0: seriously, uh, both of you guys have uh, uh, have done your show proud, I think, uh, by and, and Joel as well, for, uh, for putting up uh, one-third the uh, amount. And, and Greg, thank you so, so much for helping us. Uh, we will be back next week with um... stranger things the first of our two-part show on this netflix series if you haven't for some reason watched it yet watch it it's eight episodes long each episode is one hour get it done over four evenings okay um so uh, i have been alex shaw
1: i've been sharon shaw
0: and school's Set. out I was really outcast in high school and made fun of all the time and went home crying after school every day and uh, basically the, the Gargoyles fandom became my family and they you know, were the people that I came home after school every day and chatted with and it's because I could look forward to seeing them online every day that I made it through high school because I had no one else.
4: <laughs>
1: my family. <laughs> in a way, Gargoyles is about the process of becoming human. I think. A very human quest is finding your place in the world and learning how to be accepted and ac- accepting of others. There's an attraction for people who feel outcast. These Gargoyles characters are kind of you know, isolated and they can't come out in the open because people will fear them or, or hurt them, but they want to do what's right. They want to protect people and help people, which there's a lot of people out there that
3: feel outcast from society, but they really want to do the right thing for people. And that's you know the show kind of hits this nerve that no other show has ever hit before. You get to celebrate
2: the content of someone's character as opposed to but but the color of their skin or their outward appearance. I mean that was to me that that to me is the most impressive element about about gargoyles because it 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 forces you to deal with who they are, not what they look like or anything anything external. You are dealing with you know internal principles about these people. I see no walls to guard this city.
4: Well, our biggest worries aren't from outside, they're from inside.
3: That I am all too familiar with. You have a show that teaches you something, you have a show that entertains you, you have a show that talks about social issues. What better thing do you want in programming?
4: You know, Goliath, you may be the best thing to happen to this city in a long time.
3: I have many favorite characters, and if I had to pick one, I would say Goliath, because he is such a deep and complicated character with so much tragedy and so much intensity and passion
2: we will save the humans and we will have our revenge
3: like all great uh cartoons uh, great stories it's for kids and adults everybody can get something out of it and we were blown away it's a show for everybody it's a clever show it is not just throwaway cartoon entertainment
0: it's full of dozens of upon dozens of really amusing lines. Every time I mention the show, people always perk up and go, oh God, I love that show. They
1: were like real people, and uh, the audience responded. It continues to stand the test of time, and it continues to be interesting and intellectually engaging.
2: I've been in this business for 25 years, and it was some of the best fun I've ever had in life.
0: I think we've created something, and the fans have sustained what we created so that it can go on indefinitely. The truth is, if it comes to an end tomorrow, I'll be grateful for what we have. And if it goes on long after I'm gone, then that's pretty cool too.